0: When I was on Christian, when I was, was dedicated to the cause of, of Lucifer, I was, at that point, at that point, at that point. a second generation of I was laying there,
3: practically, the and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were all right
4: back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, guys.
0: That morning, just basically saying, do you know what they did to us? So, that's when I fled that home. that home. But no, they, well, they, they would touch they, me. They would they take you to my if They wanted, they wanted
4: mm-hmm. to communicate mm-hmm. with me. Mm-hmm. We've got them on X ray, we've got them on Cascade, we've got them on the Gauss meter, which measures magnetic field 7.5. We've got an on ultrasound machine. It's right there. Right there. It's hard, physical evidence. not illusionary.
5: You know, I just about have that thing memorized I, know. I just like sit there and mouth the words to that and just like especially the part where you hear marzulli saying human sacrifice human sacrifice <laughs> over and over again it's just just incredible you know that's 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 mr
1: turbo slut himself Luke, over here i might change i might, h- change, that I might change that name to turbo tramp so it's a little more family friendly <laughs> <laughs> no you
5: got to keep it at turbo slut man <laughs> Hey guys, we're back on Normal uh, after the Mega 100 episode that was so large we had to split it into two parts. And we actually have a guest in the studio, our friend Zach, who's back uh, I think the last time he was with us was like episode 48 or something. No, he was like, back when he was like nine. So he's 12 (laughs) now. And, uh, we got it back in the studio. It was,
3: it was the Thad McCracken episode. (laughs) Was it the Thad McCracken? Okay. It was the Thad McCracken
5: episode. Okay. Uh, around that was a little, that was like 66, I believe. That was Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Since then we, we, we got a real studio. Thanks to Rob here. And we, uh, you know that was like a mind-blowing episode that that you were uh, that you were involved in. Uh, my
3: mind was blown. There was all a lot of, of there was a
5: lot of talk about I think that's n- about nipple licking, so and
3: <laughs> I think that's why it took so long for me to come back. I just had to put my mind back together after that.
5: Right, exactly. <laughs> well, who who won it after that after that deepness? Well, it is uh, December twentieth as we record this, guys, and school is now officially out for. Everybody the across the United States. Yeah, school's out for winter in this case. You know, just Alice the winter Cooper solstice, solstice and everything. <laughs> but um, one Virginia school system got a little head start on their uh, winter vacation because on Friday, school had to be closed for a certain reason. And Rob, if you can pull up that little sound clip that I put on, you guys listen to this. Everybody else listen to it.
6: Thank you,
0: Jesus. Be here with us
6: tonight. Kimberly Herndon says she felt her rights as a parent had been violated when her ninth grade son came home with this homework assignment. It asked him to copy the Shahada, the Islamic statement of faith, which translates to, There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. When asked about her reaction to the assignment, she'll tell you.
3: Shock that. It was sent home. Shocked that that was in the school. Shocked that it was happening right here in our small town.
6: The assignment says it's meant to give students an idea of the artistic complexity of calligraphy. Herndon says she feels the assignment tried to indoctrinate her child into the Islamic religion.
3: There was no trying about it. The sheet that she gave out was pure doctrine in its origin.
6: Augusta County School Superintendent Dr. Eric Bond says neither of these lessons, nor any other lesson in the World Geography course, are an attempt at indoctrination to Islam or any other religion, or a request for students to renounce their own faith or profess any belief. He went on to say the lesson attempts objectively to present world religions in a way that's interesting and interactive for students. One student we spoke with said she didn't feel comfortable completing this assignment, even if it just was for calligraphy.
0: If it was, why couldn't we just learn to write hello, goodbye, you know, Normal words, not that.
6: On Tuesday night, dozens of people met at Good News Ministries to voice their own opinion. Hernan has not sent her child back to school since the incident happened last week.
3: I will not have my children set under a woman who indoctrinates them with the Islam religion when I am a Christian and I want to stand behind Christ.
6: Meanwhile, the school maintains that the lesson is consistent with the standards of learning in Virginia.
5: Okay, so that what we just heard there was from uh, actually a CNN affiliate. Uh, well, it was broadcast on CNN. Uh, this was in Staunton, Virginia in Riverheads High uh, School. And basically this teacher had pulled out a worksheet from a uh, workbook, uh, World Geography class. And one of the things in World Geography that you learn is you learn about the culture of – certain place that you're studying in this case i'm going to assume that they were studying the middle east or somewhere around in that general area and so they're probably um studying islam and you had a calligraphy practice which i kind of get the feeling and i'm not quite certain on this that was actually kind of optional to the entire worksheet and it has arabic letters and what it's called the Shahada which is the statement of faith in Islam. There's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, is what that means. And it says something like, here's the shahada, the Islamic statement of faith written in Arabic in the space below. Try copying it by hand. This should give you an idea of the artistic complexity of calligraphy. Then it shows it, and then the student can practice the calligraphy, which I'm pretty sure is not going to be perfect. Uh, So apparently there was this huge backlash over this. And the school system closed down all the schools in the county. This was in Augusta County, uh, Staunton, Virginia, uh, which is somewhere in, like the Shenandoah Valley. And they closed down all the schools in the county because there were threats that were made against the teacher and against school officials for, quote, unquote, teaching Islam. Okay. Okay. So here's from a Washington Post article, and it goes a little bit into the detail of why of why they did it. Um, In a statement posted on the district's website, officials said they were concerned about the tone and content of the messages they had received. We regret having to take this action, but we are doing so based on the recommendations of law enforcement and the Augusta County School Board out of an abundance of caution, the statement said. Augusta County Sheriff Randy Fisher said the superintendent and the school board decided to close the 10,000-student school system after district officials and the Riverheads high school teacher who gave the assignment received emails that seemed to increase in volume and vitriol as the week wore on. Most emails and messages assailed the school and the teacher for indoctrinating students in Islam and some referenced violence generally. Fisher said he saw messages that call for firing the teacher and putting her head on a stake. Photos of beheaded bodies also were sent to the Riverheads principal. In a news release, the superintendent also said people indicated that they were planning protests at school buildings and that some communications posed a risk of harm to school officials. So they actually closed school early. Not that it really matters, considering that it's like the day before the school holidays end anyway. So this, I guess the hope, (laughs) the hope there is, I guess, you know, are you going to have this day off and then you're going to have about two and a half weeks, up to three weeks off, and it should all blow over as the news cycle continues. Uh, Just finally, the controversy started when teacher Cheryl Laporte gave students a worksheet that instructed them to try their hand at writing the Shahada. Reached Friday, Laporte declined to comment. Kimberly Herndon, whose son is in the class, that's the woman you hear in the video, posted a, vi- posted a photo of the worksheet to her Facebook page this week. Under the heading, Practicing Calligraphy, the worksheet says, and I've already said what it, what it, what it says. Uh, the students were never asked to translate the phrase, nor were they instructed to recite it or adopt or pronounce it as a personal belief. School Superintendent Eric Bond wrote in a news release. He noted that students are slated to do similar
1: calligraphy exercises in units about China. I'm utterly disgusted. I can't believe this indoctrination going on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
5: You (laughs) know,
3: if you teach Islam, we'll, we'll be good Christians and kill you. Put your head on a stake.
5: Okay. All right. One thing I wanted, I do want to say about that. Um, I don't know about the heads on the stake thing, but the 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 way the article kind of portrays it is images of beheaded bodies or decapitated bodies. That's probably images that they're you know that ISIS puts out of after they've beheaded people, and that's probably what is being sent to the school system. Like if you allow <laughs> right. Islam in our schools, then you're just ISIS is going to take over. You know that's probably what it is. But you know the school system can't really say that or say
1: say what it actually is that they're getting dude it, at least they actually like made it out of america and in, in their geography class yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay
5: no, this is the thing that's this a pretty is the, good this point. is the thing all right all right all right zach you know yeah. you're you're still you know around in middle school and uh you know, you <laughs> <can't answer. laughs> just
3: joking I'm, I'm 20 for those of you listening um...
5: but okay well you especially. you especially. Know, yeah, you you were you just got out of high school a few years ago, right?
3: Yeah, like and two, for Luke it's ago.
5: been, you know, a little less than 10 like, years. Yeah, for me 10. it's been about 20 <laughs> 10 years. You know, and Rob probably what 15 years yeah, or so since been in, in high school. Do you remember taking those kind of lessons? Do you remember having lessons in world geography class about Islam, about any of this any of this I've, kind of material? I mean, did you see it anything that was like overtly threatening about it? And you actually told me something interesting the other night, Zach, about some s- survey your teacher sent home.
3: Oh, uh, in my senior uh, government class, U.S. government class, uh, my teacher had us do these like. Sort of like surveys, but they were like psychological tests, kind of just to test people's reactions and had them take us home, take them home to our parents. Right. And they had questions that were like, do you support the troops? Do you love your country? That kind of stuff. It's and a little uh, bizarre. Pretty much, pretty much yeah. every parent that like did the thing, got mad about it and like wrote notes on the surveys yeah. when they got sent back, which... I think my teacher said pretty much happens every time, especially in, uh, especially in Mississippi where I went to high school. <laughs>
5: right. Well, you know, here's one thing to address. Are they pushing religion? Are they really pushing any kind of like, cause you know, we have separation of church and state in this country, right? And that's any church that's synagogue, mosque, yeah. church, you know, whatever. That's any religious institution. Uh, so what's the fine line between learning about a religion as part of a culture of an area that you're studying and actually, quote unquote, being indoctrinated in that in that religion?
7: Well, I don't think it's necessarily important to be taught the beliefs of other religions in school, other than just a general, this is what it's called. This is right. the name of their religion. This is, you know the region of the world where that is practiced most heavily, that sort of thing. I don't think there's any reason ever to get into the, you know, the doctrination of it or the, you know, anything outside of Uh,
5: that. I got to disagree with that. Well, if we're talking about basics, I think, I think think that should
7: be a personal thing that's taught either at home or if you want to teach your kids about it, that's fine. I don't think, Yeah, I don't
3: think like it should be taught like too in depth, but like I didn't really like learn about, any other cultures in school. If anything, I learned yeah. more about Christianity than anything else. Right. Like I said, I went to high school in Mississippi.
5: <laughs> <laughs> On a high school level, I can buy that. Like I could buy you that you get the basics in high school. Cause that's really all you need to kind of understand it. And but you know, like a college level, it would be yeah, different. Yeah. If you're taking a class, if you're taking a class in Islamic studies, you're going to go more in depth into that. Yeah. You know, right. if yeah. I'm taking a class in yeah, Russian definitely. history, yeah, you guys are I might right. need that to
7: understand, be understand Russian Orthodox. Like yeah, I'm just thing. talking. Yeah, you know, public school. Yeah, I mean, right. like
3: you can right. learn like the basics of it, like you know, kind of generally what they believe. If you're like trying to learn about these other cultures but
5: we'll, well see that's 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 kind of what this is you know in in this worksheet i mean there's really yeah. nothing that's like too convoluted or basic and i think where people had a problem with it is because it was this it was this statement of faith you know it probably uh, was a poor choice right yeah, but it, and, and the thing is, it, it comes from, and also, you know, the teacher just kind of pulled it from, she just pulled <laughs> yeah. it from a work when, when She you know, made, she didn't yeah. actually make this thing herself. <laughs> when she made the worksheet,
1: I doubt she even knew what that said. She was like, oh, that's a pretty calligraphy. And <laughs> like, or, or it's just it like, on like on I, need something,
5: I need something real quick for the class, something to keep the kids busy. And then all of a sudden, you know, before the Christmas break, you know, we're, we're on this unit about the Middle East right now. You know, it's just like, I really want to know where we draw the fine line between that we need to educate kids about, we we should educate kids about other cultures. And then this balance it with the church and state separation issue. And then also
1: balance it with this irrational fear of that other culture. I I think that there should be like a suicide bombing 101 in high school. (laughs) (laughs)
5: But you know, you, you always get you always get that kind of stuff though. I see that kind of stuff in like World Net Daily and all these kind of more conservative leaning websites that are based in kind of like right wing Christianity and they're always just like they're teaching our kids to bow to Allah and they're they're wearing the hijab in class and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like it seems like it, it, it seems like it's just to the point of just ridiculousness. And it's just like, I just really want to know, you you know, where do you, where do you balance this? And then also too, this teacher can't just do her job without everybody and just put something that is just kind of basically innocent without it just causing this huge stench in this community. You know, had it been, had it been Judaism? Had you been learning about the Torah or the Talmud or something like that? Do you think they would have made a think about it? Do you oh, think man. they would have made a think about it if it was they're, the trying Gita? To, try to
3: make our kids Jewish. Right. You, do you make make think
1: they big. would have made a think hey, about hey, that? Jews are cool. They're not trying to bomb America right now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right now is the
1: key word. Right now. <laughs> Just, but them <laughs> evil some bitches going to catch on.
5: We got our eyes on them. <laughs> but no, is it, but is it because it's Islam? Is because it because San Bernardino yeah. and all this other stuff that has happened, it is, and then Trump's rhetoric that's going
3: on? I think I think to some degree, kids like should be educated about Islam. You know, in some way, maybe not like all of it, but like you know, at least where they can understand, you know, some of it and help get rid of some of the the ignorance that surrounds. That, sure. That's absolutely
5: sure. true. And if you want to take it from the tact of the, from the point of view of Islam is bad and you know, they're all out to get us and they're all out to kill us, which I'm not taking that point of view. And I don't think anybody in this room is taking that point of view, but if you want to take it from there, you can at least say, well, then when not you want to know your enemy? When did you want to learn about him?" Exactly. No, I just want them dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the attitude, isn't it? Yeah. And then, and then also, Here's another aspect of this, too. You hear that lady, uh, this, this Herndon lady, talking about, you know, I just want to do what's right for Jesus. <laughs> you know, look, guys, everybody, you know, y'all know I'm a Christian. But yeah. it's like, you, you, look at, you, you look at something like that, and it's like, that is the attitude of, well, I don't want them knowing about your religion, but my religion's okay. The higher, the they higher. They don't the care about God. Right. <laughs> they don't care about the separation of church and state. <laughs> they'll use that argument they'll use that argument to to say that you know Islam should not be taught in school but Christianity that's
3: okay. Well yeah because we're we're a Christian nation. Yeah.
5: <laughs> that's the argument. All right, I think we're dwelling too much. And, and one more thing <laughs> I want to say is that we had this kind of the similar we had like this pastor here actually in the our area here where we live got on Facebook and was making the same kind of, uh, it was about a worksheet again. And he tried to make this big stink about like, was it uh, actually, I think it's the school that one of your kids, your kids go to, Rob figures (laughs) that, that they were having this work, this worksheet and it was indoctrinating them with Islam. You know, I I just, I saw this a couple of days ago and it's just something that I really just wanted to kind of, you know, just try to understand the mentality of this, or even if there is, Cause you got like on Facebook, everybody, it's either, it's either pro or con, right? It's either, it's either like, like, we need to, you know, defend America for the, for God. And then you got the other people on the other side saying, you're just a bunch of ignorant morons. No, I'd like to understand what the hell is going on. It's kind of of the,
3: it's kind of the same mass hysteria that happened in America in the forties with the Japanese Germany in the forties with the Jews uh, you know, Salem in the 1600s.
5: Yeah. And is it also anti-intellectualism too? Yeah. Is this the idea that you can, that, you know, well, we don't have to learn anything because we're, we're superior. <laughs> is that going on too? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. That's America's racist, always
3: isn't. had that attitude. That's racist.
5: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, we have tonight coming on, uh, Robert W. Sullivan, the fourth, uh, we're going to talk to him about cinema symbolism. We're going to talk about hidden meanings in movies and, uh, uh, esoteric and Gnostic themes in movies and real excited to have him on. We had him on back in like twenty fourteen talking about his book The Royal Arch of Enoch. And we did touch a little bit about that stuff. We're gonna talk about movies tonight. We'll watch a uh, Luke's eyes glaze that. over.
1: Wait, what? About
5: when we talk about movies. No,
1: it's not that. Whenever you guys get in detail about like all these avant garde movies and stuff. <laughs> <we're> like... <laughs>
5: Oh, well, you're the one that watched Trash Humpers. I don't think you can get Go, any more. Uh, okay. I don't think you can get any more avant garde than that. It's <laughs> two, <that's> <laughs> two <laughs> days in a row
1: that Trash Humpers has come up in my life. now. <laughs> There's two parts of Trash Humpers that's funny, and the rest of it is and the rest of it's disturbing. Okay, describe Trash Humpers real quick for the audience. Trash Humpers um, is actually made here in Nashville. By yeah, the way. right. Harmony uh, Corinne yeah. is the one that directed it. <laughs> and and it's just he, he made it to be complete just like shock value and garbage he he wanted right. to, he wanted it to be the worst film ever made and i mean it's quite yeah quite possibly succeed <laughs> he's got to be in the like bottom 10 somewhere it, it's awful if you i mean beat gummo out yeah gummo was awesome
5: <laughs> <laughs> how I, did trash hopers come up a conversation by the way rob how did this oh, well, come up actually, conversation?
7: Gummo, gummo came up first yeah well before that um uh, Chef was talking about John Waters. Okay, yeah. I was not. I I'd seen Pink, Pink Flamingos, Flamingos and yeah. I didn't know who who had you know who directed or wrote or whatever. I'd never heard of the guy. So we started talking about that, and then you know we evolved into to Gummo and eventually to Trash
1: Humpers. All right. Well. Well, g- Gummo Gummo is great. Yeah, Gummo. <laughs> gum, yeah, oh, you know. I, yeah, I, it's a good.
5: Yeah, I mean, if you like <laughs> stuff about about. About kids eating spaghetti and
1: spaghetti in the bathtub. No, well, that I mean, was the best and, scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's sickening, is it not? It. Yeah. It's sick. It's so disturbing for some reason. Yeah. And all he's doing is eating spaghetti and chocolate at the same time and drinking milk in the bathtub. <laughs> 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 is that a fine representation of like Nashville cinema? It, yeah. it is. <laughs> well, I, I mean, but like his whole point in that movie, I could see it was was to show human depravity here in the South. Right, was well, supposed to be Ohio, actually. Well, yeah. That, oh, oh dude, be, dude yeah. that's right. I forgot. Right. I forgot for a minute he wasn't well, the, <laughs> he wasn't portraying Nashville. The
3: Midwest kind of sucks a little bit more than the South. I'd say that's what my brother said. Yeah, it's
1: all the industrial
5: industrial <laughs> kind of waste and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but anyway, guys, uh, we will be back with uh, Robert W. Sullivan, and at the end of the show, we're going to do a special like year in review of Conspiracy Normal, uh, twenty fifteen. So. Guys, we'll be right back. All right, guys, we're back on Conspiranormal. And to round up the year, the very momentous year of 2015 for us, we have on the line one of the favorite guests from last year, in 2014, and that's Mr. Robert W. Sullivan IV. We had him on talking about his book, The Royal Arch of Enoch, where we talked about kind of like the history of Freemasonry and what the Royal Arch of Enoch meant. And he had a book coming out at that time uh, called Cinema Symbolism. And really happy to have you back on, Robert. It's good to have you back.
4: Thanks, Adam, for having me back on Conspiracy Normal. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Um, I remember the show from 14. It was a great show. Um, and I appreciate you having me back on for Cinema Symbolism. Much appreciated and uh, looking forward to uh, the conversation.
5: Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Uh, I want to ask you, before we kind of get into the movies and kind of analyzing them, and I want to talk about how you kind of got interested in studying kind of like the esoteric symbolism in movies. And obviously you are a Freemason, so I I can see how you would be interested in the esotericism. But how does that kind of relate, this research kind of relate to your previous book, which is about the Royal Arch of Enoch?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, When I was doing Royal Arch of Enoch, which was a product of twenty years of researching, like the occult, you know, mysticism, comparative religion, astrology. um, When I was finishing Royal Arch of Enoch, I wanted to bring the book up to the twentieth century, and I was noticing at the time. It was mainly with two movies. um, There's very veiled Masonic underpinnings, symbols going on in films. It was the National Treasure movie and the Da Vinci Code movie. Um, The National Treasure movie. Um, Those, these are two movies I dissected in Royal Arch of Enoch. The first National Treasure movie is the Royal Arch of Enoch ritual. You're literally watching a Masonic ritual. And um, uh, Da Vinci Code has this very veiled sort of Royal Arch of Enoch theme with the the, um, idea of clues leading to wisdom and the number thirteen constantly appearing. So I was seeing it with these two movies. And when these movies came out, this was around 04 and 05. Um, Royal Arch was well underway. had begun in earnest. Um, so I saw it in these movies, and this just really fascinated me. And I, I had always kind of knew, um, like with the Star Wars movies, that they were based on the work of Joseph Campbell, and there was a lot of comparative religion and comparative mythology going on in those. Um, and the Matrix movies, I, I you know, I just from my study, I, I knew were Gnostic, uh, were Gnostic films in general. So this was something that had just always interested me. Um, and when I was doing Royal Arch, um, I, I, wrote, I finished the Royal of Enoch book just talking about some I, – I, I left it to Freemasonry. I didn't go beyond Freemasonry. I basically did um, Masonic symbolism in certain movies, solar symbolism in certain movies. Um, but it was it's, nevertheless, it was a, a subject matter that interested me, and I wanted to keep talking about it. Naturally, Royal of Enoch couldn't go on forever. It was a 700-page book at that point in time. I ended it just delving into these movies like National Treasure, Da Vinci Code, being There, which is a solar allegory, Excalibur, the old John Borman, uh, King Arthur movie, which is a solar allegory. But right, that's one of my favorite about,
5: movies, by the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
4: Yeah. Absolutely. It is, it is mine, too. I, I, I love that film. At any rate, when I got done Royal Arch, I just continued. It, it's sort of like a continuation of that chapter where I just was talking about these very veiled, esoteric, mythological themes going on in popular movies. Um, and, and, you know, out came cinema symbolism. Um, I only dissected and took on movies that I was 100% certain this material was being presented in. Um, if, if I wasn't sure I, I, or I didn't see it, I didn't do it. Um, and I was, and I only dissected it in a contextual basis, meaning, um, it was, I had to determine first what, what this movie was contextually telling me exoterically. And then once that was determined, Um, the the hidden emblems and the hidden themes became much more recognizable on screen. So um, out came Cinema Symbolism. I was writing that, and I'll just wrap up on this. When I was doing Cinema Symbolism, there were even more movies I wanted to talk about, but alas, the the book would have gone on forever. Again, it would never have ended. So I excised those those movies out, and I'm actually writing Cinema Symbolism 2, its sequel, where uh, I'm taking on a whole new slate of movies, and um, that's being written as we speak.
5: Well, I want to definitely get into Star Wars a little later because absolutely that's kind of timely right now with a new movie out. But uh, you start off the book, I think, with a very interesting one and one that I would normally – actually this entire genre, I would never really think of, of having any kind of like esoteric meaning to it. And, and you start off with, with two horror movies and that's The Exorcist and the The Omen series. And uh, you kind of look at those as kind of having a lot of um, like solar symbolism in these movies.
4: Yeah, there there, there isn't both. There's a lot of um, what you're dealing with in those movies is is it, by and large, you're dealing with the whole idea of light versus dark. I mean, of course, this is Jesus versus the devil. Um, but this, you know, the idea of light versus dark predates Christianity. This is Zoroastrianism. This is Manichaeanism. Um, and, and you, you will find this um, going on in these movies. Um, both movies have some other interesting hidden symbolisms as well. I mean, like with The Exorcist, you know, you have Father Marin at the beginning confronting. I mean, it, it's very well placed. It's one of those things you've seen it a million times, but you've, yeah. really, you've seen it, but you've really never picked up on it, where you have the whole idea of the death of light, the death of the sun, you know, comparatively Jesus being the light, the sun. Um, so, so you have the exaltation of darkness uh... you know the demon coming in we see at the beginning of the movie with Marin confronting the statue of the demon with the setting sun in the background representing the 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 death of light Then you have the whole thing going on and this this is this is something really interesting that um that Friedkin does is, is, is to convey this, that, you know, we're dealing with the exaltation of darkness. Um, you have the, the, the mother coming home from the, the shoot at Georgetown University. She's accosted by a group of trick-or-treaters. This is um, Friedkin telling your subconscious mind that it's Halloween. And, of course, Halloween occurs at the halfway point between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. This is the official mark of when the, the 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 darkness overtakes the light need the 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 days are officially really becoming longer at this point so it's the death of daylight the exaltation of darkness that the good is dying Um, the devil and the demons are coming out to play. And of course, this is exactly what happens. The, the little girl becomes possessed by the evil demon. Um, you know, you know, so who do you call in to get rid of the demon? The two sun priests, the Jesuits. Take a look at the symbol for the society of Jesus. It's the sun. Um, so you have this very deep Manichaean theme of light versus darkness, good versus evil. Um, you'll find these exact same themes also, um, prevalent in, um, the Omen movies, um, and especially in parts two and three, um, if you, if you pay attention to those, to those movies, I mean, it's, it's the same sort of th- theme going on. In part two, where you have the Antichrist, Damien Thorne, coming of age, and right. of course he's coming into his own power, um, if you pay attention to that movie, it's in a perpetual state of autumn and winter. Um, spring and summer never occur. That, that, that entire movie, um, this is Damien part two, um, the second Omen movie. Watch it next time and just pay attention to the weather in it. Um, it's, it's endlessly winter and autumn. That's all it is, is winter and, au- winter, winter and autumn. And again, this is symbolically informing your subconscious mind regarding the death of the sun, the death of Jesus, the exaltation of darkness, a.k.a. the Antichrist is coming to power. The the same exact damn theme is 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 going on in part three, where Jesus is coming back at the vernal equinox, and of course, this is you know the vernal equinox is when winter is over with, when the days when it when the light is exalted and the darkness becomes shorter. So in 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 the omen in the third omen movie, we have the defeat of the antichrist at the vernal equinox, the death of darkness, and the exaltation, the return of light, the return of Jesus. Point of fact. Um, and this is one of the few times, you know, we, we talk about these occult themes and occult symbols and esoteric imagery in, in movies. Um, the Omen 3 actually has the, the release date, which is occult in nature, which was on the vernal equinox of, I want to say, 1981. Interesting. Um, and again, it, it's just that. It's the, you know, the, the defeat of Antichrist. The Defeat of the Antichrist, Damian Thorne, and The Return of Light. So, yeah, in both those movies, um, you, you have a, a, a very deep play on light versus darkness, um, the sun versus darkness. Um, it's a great study. Um, I'm just skimming over it. But, uh, yeah, it, it's two. two those, are, those are great movies, and, um, you know, it, they're definitely ones that, uh, you know, when you deal with religious films, um, you, you, you will generally find this, this whole play with light versus dark, the sun, um, things of that nature going on, and it's uh, it's a great study. Have you seen? Have you ever seen the movie Nineteen Hundred?
5: That's I, I don't know if there's any like kind of esoteric thing, but the, the, where you're talking about the seasons, uh, that's kind of a, a an Italian movie from the seventies.
4: It's called nineteen hundred. Nineteen hundred,
5: and it's about, no, I've never,
4: I've never, I've never seen it.
5: It's a uh, Bernardo Butterlucci, and he's. It's like a study. Of, it's like a about the the struggle of the communists against the fascists in Italy, and he does kind of the same thing. He divides it into four different sections, and one is like uh, you you start off in spring, and another one it's uh, or you start off in summer, and then when the fascists take over, it's fall. World War Two is winter. And then when the, when the fascists fall, it's spring. So it's, a, it's kind of like a motif that he uses through the movie.
4: Yeah, I mean, th- th- what you're saying doesn't surprise me. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I haven't seen the movie, so I wouldn't want to comment on it. But, I mean, I, I wouldn't doubt what you're, what you're seeing and what you're saying to be true. I mean, that, that definitely sounds, from a symbolic standpoint, you know, a, a correct interpretation.
5: Isn't there some other religious imagery too in in The Exorcist? Like you mentioned a scene, and I, I didn't even think about this. And I've seen The Exorcist probably a million times at this point, but a scene where the where she's uh uh was well, Ellen Burstyn is with the doctors in the on the table. Oh, I, yeah,
4: I, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that 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 entire scene. Um, and again, this is very, very veiled religious imagery going on. That it's the scene where religion, where, where excuse me, where Ellen Burstyn, the mother, um. Uh, uh, McNeil um, is is talking with the doctors at the Barringer Clinic. Um, if you pay attention to that scene, that that scene is the replication of Da Vinci's Last Supper painting, hmm. um, where you have um, Burstin, um, Chris McNeil at the head of the table, Chris Christ, all but the same name, um, and then you have the the, the division of the doctors. Um, she's surrounded by 12 doctors in the four groups of three. Um, and again, the the idea is what what this imagery is is implanting in, in your head is um um it, it, this is when the doctors tell her that they don't know what's wrong with the little girl and that a spiritual cure is needed. So you have this this very, you know, iconic Last Supper painting um by Da Vinci being symbolically played out um on the screen with Chris at the head of the table, surrounded by the twelve doctors. It's a play on the, the Da Vinci's um Last Supper painting. And of course this is when they tell her that a Christian exorcism is needed to remedy the daughter. I mean it's very interesting. At one point they say, um, you know, you know, you know. She she accuses them of being, you know, it's like a voodoo doctor, um, you know, or this is voodoo, some sort of voodoo. And um, she says something to the effect of, you know, 88 doctors here, no one can explain this to me. And it's interesting that of all the numbers she would pick, it's the number 88, um, because in, in in Greek gematria, 888 is actually the number for Jesus Christ. Um, so so that that's another interesting um, um, Christ reference there. Um, um, with, with, with Chris McNeil. Yeah, but, uh, it, it's exactly right. Is, is, it's that scene with the Last Supper is, is important because that's when Chris and the doctors inform her that a Christian spiritual cure, um, is, is what's going to save the little girl. So, of course, Freakin puts up there the Last Supper painting, um, and implants that in your subconscious mind. Um, again, very, very, very esoteric imagery in, in The Exorcist.
5: And there's also the part where, uh, Damien Karras is, He's like uh, you said. He's kind of rising from the. Uh, he's coming up the subway platform, and you see the number thirty-three behind him.
4: That's absolutely right. You have um, the whole the whole idea um, with Father Karras is uh, what you're dealing with with him is like apotheosis. Um, he's going to become the the Christ-like savior for the little girl. He's going to become her personal savior. Uh, if you pay attention to the movie. Um, to symbolize this, Karis is generally in a state of ascension. He's constantly seen walking up hills, walking up flights of steps, and you're absolutely correct when he, when he comes. Um, when he's introduced into the movie, he, he actually comes up to a subway platform, um, and uh, it's, um, he, he's coming up to the platform, and he's coming up from 33rd Street, and that, that's a clear Christ reference um, to the 33 years that Christ right. was on Earth. And it's investing. It's investing Harris as this Christ archetype, this savior figure for the little girl. Um, Again, a very interesting play there, um, imagery by uh, Friedkin.
5: I I want to ask you too about. This was an interesting choice, I thought. In the book uh, was Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and and I guess that kind of goes into also. Uh, you know, kind of like you research on, on Excalibur as well. I mean, what is there in that Monty Python movie that uh, kind of like esoterically hidden?
4: Yeah, um, it was, it was, it was, um, it really started. Um, if, if you research this Esoterica and you get into comparative religion, the King Arthur story um, is the Christ story. Um, it, it's all but the same thing. Um, and if you really want to see these astrological solar symbolism. Um, take a look at the Excalibur movie. That's by far and away the the best King Arthur movie to see the sol- the entire solar astrological symbolism um, yeah, of I the agree. King Arthur legend. Yeah, I mean, and, and that, that the Excalibur movie is a movie that I took on in Royal Arch of Enoch. So if you want my interpretation of that, read Royal Arch. But at any rate, when I was doing Excalibur, um, believe it or not, that actually came from an old blog post um, over over years ago on my old MySpace page. Um, where I just dissected the, the, the solar and astrological symbolisms in the King Arthur story. And, and as points, I just pointed it out in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which of course is King Arthur and Excalibur. Granted, it's better seen in Excalibur. Um, and I didn't want to put the Monty Python, uh, material in, in Royal Arch. It just wasn't appropriate. So I put, um, I, did, I did Monty Python in the Holy Grail, which again is the King Arthur story um, in, in cinema symbolism. Um, and it's the whole thing where King Arthur is the sun. Um, the Knights of the Round Table are, are the, the 12 houses of the zodiac. Um, generally depicted in the author's story, there's 12 um, knights symbolizing the 12 houses, or alternatively, 24 knights symbolizing the 12 houses of the zodiac in their diurnal and nocturnal phases. Um, and again, you you, you, know, it, you know you know you have with Python, you have people like Terry Gilliam, who is very very well familiar familiar with comparative religion, Gnosticism, yeah. um, esoterica. You know, you can take a look at Brazil, Twelve Monkeys. Right. Um, uh, you know, some of his other movies. But I mean, it, you know, just just right from the get go. I mean, with um, you know, with King Arthur and, and Holy Grail, you have. Um, I mean, just take a look at Graham Chapman and, and, and Patsy. Look look no further than the emblem on their tunics and their flag to symbolize what they symbolize. Um, and, of course, the symbol is the sun. Um, I mean, you have some very unique astrological symbolisms going on in that movie. It, it plays out a little differently uh, because it is a comedy. But I say in the book, you know, just being the Arthurian legend and, and the fact that author is a solar allegory, you know, it, it kind of rubs off on, in Holy Grail. And I like the bit where they come out of the Tomb of Winter, um, and they're greeted by Tim. Um, who of course wears the, the ram's horns of Aries and is fire, and is fire obsessed. You know, yeah. Aries is a fire sign Then leads him to the little cave with the rabbit. Um, and again, this has to do with, uh, the bunny being the symbol of the vernal equinox, um, and the rabbit moon and things like that. So, so there's a great study going on with the King Arthur legend and, 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 and the, the whole story, the whole Arthurian legend is just overloaded with astrological motifs and, and solar motifs. Uh, And again, if you want to watch it, you want to see it properly, um, watch Excalibur, then read my portion on it in in Royal Archivianic. But um, Monty Python, the Holy Grail um, definitely has some of these same themes in it as well. Um, It's a great movie. It's one of my all time favorite films. And it was a a real a real treat uh, taking it apart esoterically uh, in cinema symbolism.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I I did want to ask you just real quick, though, is there a link between? The King Arthur legend and Jesus—is he almost like a like synonymous or uh, like a symbol for Christ?
4: Yeah, I mean it, it's really a comparative story. Um, you know, it, it's where King Arthur is the sun is the solar you know solar avatar. Um, I mean, it's, you know, just as Jesus is, you have the the, the twelve knights, the twelve apostles. Um, I mean, you've got the traitor. Um, figure who is Mordred, and of course in the Christ story it's Judas. Right. This is the um, this is in, in in Excalibur. If you pay attention to Excalibur, when Mordred is becoming of age and is, is taking over, um, this is when Arthur King Arthur is dying and is in a state of weakness. And of course when Scorpio when when this and, and the the in in the comparatively Judas Iscariot is the sign of Scorpio. Um, and Mordred is the same thing. So when when Mordred's coming to power, and of course Scorpio cor- occurs after the equinox. Excuse me, after the autumn equinox, when the sun or Arthur is dying, and going into a dis- state of decay. If you pay attention to Excalibur, you will see um, when uh, when Mordred is coming to power, um, Arthur is King Arthur goes into a state of decay. Um, the sun is in the sign of Scorpio. This is why Mordred wears the golden armor. He doesn't carry the score, the, the sword. He has the spear, the Scorpio stinger. So, um, yeah, the, the entire, the entire King Arthur legend is, is just, um, you know, a, 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 a Christ allegory. Then, of course, he drinks from the Holy Grail, is resurrected from the tomb, you know, rides out, uh, you know, rides out of the castle. Then what do we have? We have the vernal equinox where all the, all the plantation, Excuse me, all the foliage returns to the plants. Um, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's the same thing of Christ being resurrected from the tomb. You know, he, he's in the tomb, the, the stone is rolled away. That, that's an allegory for the end of the winter months and, and the vernal equinox when he emerges from the tomb. This is why Easter occurs always right around the vernal equinox. That, that is completely solar, completely astrological. Um, so it, by and large, yes, to answer your question, I get into it much more in depth in the books. But, um, the Arthurian legend is a solar allegory reflecting, echoing the Jesus story.
5: Does, does King Arthur have any place or like, are the concepts of the Arthurian legends? And this may be going down a rabbit hole here. Uh, do, do they have any like significance in Freemasonry?
4: Uh, I would say, um, the next issue we're looking for is, is I want to say it, it, it's again, it's comparative, um. You know, you know, like you know, the whole King Arthur story never really turns up in Freemasonry, but but what you're looking for is it's it's comparative again, and this is why I put the movie on in Royal Arch, it's, it's the same thing that's going on in the third degree ritual. It's it's the death and resurrection of the Sun Man, the solar messiah, in, in, in the Masonic third degree ritual, it's Hiram Abiff who is killed and resurrected. It's parodying this whole notion of of Christianity of the authorian legend it's the death and resurrection of the right. son um, and and it, only in masonry it's the death and resurrection of Hiram Abiff so if comparatively it's the same, they just have different different names names on the characters i mean and it's the same thing I mean just real quick um, you know Hiram Abif is killed he 's resurrected, um, twelve fellow craft go looking for the body you know i mean you know you know, the 12 fellow crypt are, again, representation of the 12 houses of the Zodiac. So it's a comparative symbolic study of the third degree Masonic ritual, which is a solar allegory, echoing Christianity, which is a solar allegory. We're echoing the Arthurian legend, which is, again, a solar allegory. Hmm.
5: Yeah, it's it's interesting how all that kind of revolves around astronomy, the movement of the Earth, the seasons, the sun and the moon. Uh, the the gods also kind of revolve around that as well and it just it, it's really fascinating like the like the, this, this survival that we have in our western civilization from kind of well for lack of a better term paganism really
4: oh yeah i mean it, it it's it's um a lot a lot of the um religions <laughs> Um you know I mean, I mean you know I mean I you know with with Freemasonry, I mean the whole ha of this story is a is a retelling of the Osirian story from Egypt, you know where uh, Osiris is killed and resurrected by his virgin wife, Isis, who possesses the secret name um I get into this in much greater detail um in in, in royal arch of enoch um but to, but to just make this incredibly you know I mean I could go on for hours on this, but essentially when you get into you know with christianity and judaism um it's just a swapping of names i mean it's 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 you know you know horus or osiris becomes jesus mithras becomes jesus um you know you you have just i mean you know you you have these astrological allegories based on the procession of the equinox you know, within Judaism, with Moses growing the ram's horn, right. symbolizing the, the 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 sign of Aries. Um, Judaism, the, the whole Moses story is surrounded with fire. You know, he gets the the the, the 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 he talks to the burning bush, pillars of fire help the Jews out of Egypt. You know, it, it's all the sun in the house of Aries, the ram. And, and then you have the sun in the house of Pisces. Jesus washes feet and has his feet washed. You know, Pisces rules the feet. Um, he's a fisherman, uh, feeds his followers with two fishes. Again, nothing, nothing here is literal. This is all symbolic. This is all astrology. Um, and it's just a retelling of the same story based on these astrological solar motions uh, of the universe. Um, and it, it, it's really the pagan religion just with new names on it. I mean, even Christmas, I mean, you which know, is <laughs> coming up right now. Right. I mean, this is just a celebration of the old uh, winter solstice. Um, you know I mean you can call it Christmas, you can call it Hanukkah, you can call it Kwanzaa, you call it whatever the hell you want to um, it 's the celebration of the winter solstice where the where the sun has reached the lowest point in the northern hemisphere, and now the days start to get longer and it 's a celebration of the of the sun uh, of the days starting to get longer again um, that 's what Christmas is um, and you know you know I mean it has no- nothing to do with the birth of jesus um, i mean this 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 has been well documented. Um, by numerous scholars. Um, it, it, it's just the old uh, celebration of the winter solstice, um, which was adopted by the Western Church and just identified with the birth of Jesus. But it's the it's the celebration of the newly born annual sun um, when the sun begins to, again, increase, the daylight um, begins to increase again and ultimately, you know, reaches equal point at the uh, vernal equinox and then on its way to the uh, summer solstice when uh, the daylight has fully overtaken the night.
5: Yeah, it, it, it's it, you know Christianity. All it did was really it it took these holidays that were already established throughout the Roman Empire, and it just stamped its own names oh. on these festivals that had already existed. You know, Easter is the same oh. way. You know,
4: oh, absolutely, and they didn't even. It's more than the holidays. They took the old pagan gods and just renamed them. Um, I mean, you took Mithras, Horus, um, Att- you know, you know, you know, uh, Atticus. I'm um, Addis, excuse me, um, you know, I just renamed them Jesus. I mean, you call the son Jesus, you call, you know, the son Horus, you can call the son Mithras, you can call the son Osiris, it's all the exact same thing. I mean, you call the son Luke Skywalker, you can call the son Harry <laughs> Potter. I mean, right. it's the same story. Right. Um, you know, instead of the Virgin Isis, it's the Virgin Mary. So it's, it's the same characters, just renamed. And you're right. I mean, it's the same holidays. With, with the resurrection of Jesus as the vernal equinox, the resurrection of the sun out of the tomb of winter, uh, the birthday of Jesus as the birthday of the sun. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, this, this, this goes on and on. Um, the whole, um, um, I, I, forget, I forget what it is. I, I talk about it in one of the books. It may even be the book I'm writing right now. Um, the celebration of, um, of the feast of John the Baptist um, has to do with the sign of Aquarius. Um, uh, uh, right right around the um, right around the um, after the uh summer solstice where aquarius's head appears on the horizon um, and this is of course where the idea of John the Baptist losing his head comes from i get into this much more in detail i, I believe it's in it's in one of the new books i'm writing it may be even in the new book of freemasonry but but all, all of this is is astrological in nature um, no question about it um, adam um, and I, I have a whole intense study on this in Royal Arch of Enoch. Uh, so, so if your listeners are interested in this, check it out. But this, this material, it's important because this material um, turns up in movies as well.
5: Yeah. It permeates it really. And, and, I, since you mentioned Osiris and you mentioned ISIS and this story, uh, th- here's another one that until I heard you speak about this, that I'd never even really thought of before. And that's the back to the future trilogy. And especially the first movie, uh, and, you know, and really, the way that you, put, that, you, that you paint it there, you see a ton of, of mythic themes in these movies.
4: Oh, no question about it. The um, Back to the Future movies um, was was one of probably my favorite chapters to write um, in, in, in the cinema book. Um, and it, it's a great study because it's, it's you're right, it's, it's a series of movies where you really wouldn't expect to find anything, but it really is overwrought. With a lot of esoteric symbolisms. Um, I mean, you have the whole idea of the Osirian family, George McFly, Lorraine Baines, and Marty being the, you know, the solar family. They live in Lion Estate. That's a reference to Leo the Lion. Leo is the sole house of the sun. You have George McFly as Osiris, who is, of course, killed and resurrected. He's resurrected in part two with the aid of, of his wife, um, Lorraine and his son Marty, who is comparatively Horus. You know, you know, the archenemy of the Osirian family is this Egyptian god of darkness known as uh, Typhon. Right. Of course, Beth Tannen, I mean, the name is all but phonetically the same. You have the Hermes Trismegistus, Egyptian wizard figure, who is Doc Brown. Um, it's interesting that he, if if you read um, Crowley's book on the Tarot, um, the fifth card is the Hierophant. Um, and and, he, and Crowley identifies this. This is the Egyptian symbology. Um, Crowley identifies this with the master of space time. And it's interesting that, you know, Brown um, discovers time travel on, on November 5th, 1955. So we have the number five coming in. We have the whole idea of Marty as, as Apollo or Horus driving the sun chariot, which is the DeLorean. Um, We have to invest this with solar energy, so in order to activate it, the lightning strikes the clock tower at 1004, that's an esoteric reference to the date of October 4th, which is the 277th date on the solar calendar, which means there are 88 days left in the year. This is why the DeLorean or the Sun Chariot has to reach 88 miles an hour to to deliver Horace or Marty back to 1985. Um, I go into it much more in depth in the book, but yeah, a lot of comparative religion um, in, 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 the Back to the Future movies, it carries over into parts two and three as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, just, just a ton going on in those movies. And I, and I agree with you, Adam. Um, th- th- those are a set of movies with, which I was so happy to, to write about and take on. Um, right. because, you know, it is, it, it's, a, it's a series of movies where I've seen them a million times and, you, you know, you just think it's an adventure. But there is just Zemeckis and Spielberg just do a fantastic job of, of embedding so much esoteric imagery in those movies. Um, and you realize it that, again, that's one where you're beyond the coincidence level. Um, you know, if you saw this once or twice, you think, Oh, okay, maybe it's just by happenstance. But, I mean, those movies are just so overloaded with so much esoteric imagery and symbolism um and again it was just a great study and um i I was just real happy with the way they came out in the book
5: well let me ask you do you think that and this will kind of go into our star wars discussion about george lucas but do you think that these myth mythology themes that these are purposely put in or is it kind of more of a subconscious kind of level
7: that's kind of what i was going to ask like if well, before you described the the Back to the Future thing, anyways, I was thinking that I was going to believe it was more of a, um, uh, you know, archetypical characters and themes and stuff. But right. there seems to be so much depth, like you said, that it's beyond the coincidence line.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a combination. I mean, I I talk about it in the book because it, it's a great question to ask, and I, I split it out. And you you can look at this one of three ways. You can look at it. That's intentionally placed. I believe that's the case most of the time. I mean, I believe that's the case clearly with Star Wars. No question, the Matrix movies. I believe it's the case in the you know movies like Black Swan, Back right. to the Future. But then you have to ask yourself, you know, can this stuff be appearing by you know, or is it is it a coincidence? I don't buy that either. So then you have to ask yourself, you know, is it is it is it you know is it appearing? But is it appearing because the filmmakers and the producers and the writers are also, you know, are being influenced by something that maybe we're all influenced by? Then you get into the work of Carl Jung, the collective unconscious, the archetypes, mm-hmm. um, and I believe, you know, I believe that these, that these filmmakers are very aware of this and are using this in movies. But you know, at least we forget that these filmmakers are also subject to this as well. So, you know, are there movies where perhaps the the, the filmmaker you know, wasn't aware of the imagery that he was putting, putting in, putting into the film. So then you have to ask yourself, well, how did it get there? And you, you can turn to, to, to the collective unconscious, um, and, and to these archetypes, um, you know, the, the lunar goddess, the solar hero, the solar man, the, the solar savior, the trickster, um, you know, the male trickster, the, the juggler card in the tarot, uh, the female trickster, Lilith, um, the mother archetype, the, the father, the ogre father, um, you know, and and that's why I get into the world of Carl Young um, in the, in the movie book because you know you, you, you look at some movies where I believe that it is um, you know I believe a lot of in a lot of the movies it is intentionally placed but like you look at like the the movies of like Ed Wood for instance and you, yeah. you look at something like you know like a piece of schlock like Glenn or Glenda um, right right that movie you know that movie I, I talk about it in, in in the book because that that is really one of the best examples you will ever find of a gnostic demiurge on film it's the Bella Lugosi character. Um, I mean, that is just, you know, the, the God of the material world who pulls the strings of the humans to make them hop, skip and jump as, uh, to his will. I mean, if there is ever a Gnostic demiurge on film, it is Bella Lugosi's puppet master in Glenna Glenda. Now, look. I mean, I've read a ton of books on Ed Wood. I mean, I've seen all his movies. I know damn well Ed Wood (laughs) didn't know the first damn thing about a Gnostic Demiurge. I mean, I'm sure if you got into a time machine and went back to 1953 and and went up to Ed Wood and said, hey, why did you cast Bela Lugosi as a Gnostic Demiurge, you know, as a Manichaean Demiurge? He wouldn't know what the hell you're talking about. So then how do you explain this? And again, I think the answer can be found in, in that instance in the world of Carl Jung Um, in the archetypes, in the collective unconscious. But when it comes to movies like Star Wars, Back to the Future, Black Swan, The Matrix especially, I mean, I'm 100% convinced this material is placed in there intentionally. I I have no doubt
5: about it. Sure. And I applaud you for being able to sit through all of Ed Wood's movies, because (laughs) I've only been able to get through Plan 9 from Outer Space. Only
4: one. I like the Ed, I like the Ed Wood movies. I mean, they're they're they're, they're they are Camping. They're entertaining. Yeah. They're entertaining. They're entertaining, but not for the way Wood intended them to be. They try. so yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I won't go <laughs> belabor this, but they try so hard to make these overarching statements about society and, 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 and these important themes. And they try and the actors try so hard and they just fall flat <laughs> on their face. And, and they're hilarious. And they're fun to watch. But again, not for the reasons that Ed Wood intended them to be.
5: Yeah, one of my favorite movies is Tim Burton's uh, movie about Ed Wood. That's like so good the way that the way that he does it. And he gives it that feel that is of an Ed Wood movie. Uh, One that I really wanted to to ask you about. And this one is kind of like it goes to, I believe, two levels. And that is The Wizard of Oz. And you have a very kind of a political allegory in Wizard of Oz, which I'd like you to explain. But also there is, a, there's some deeper esoteric uh, aspects to it as well.
4: Oh, absolutely. The guy, the, there, there's actually three levels. There's also the profane level, which is just as about a little girl goes to a magical land and has an adventure, goes home end of story, you know, this is what you would call your profane explanation. The guy who wrote the story, the Wizard of Oz L. Frank Baum was a member of Madame Blavatsky's Theosophy movement. Right. So let's just end, end any speculation right there that this isn't in, intentionally done, um, and it is. Um, you know, Bram Stoker, the guy who wrote the Dracula story, was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, um, and Dracula has, has some esoteric themes in it as well. So, I mean, you know, and, you know the, the, when, when these guys are members of these orders, don't be surprised when this stuff turns up in their, in, in their work. Sure. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Adam. Um, when you're dealing with Wizard of Oz, you have this political allegory. This one, this one, to be honest, is somewhat more commonly known. Um, it's it's really a retelling of the political socioeconomic scene of the United States from around 19, oh, excuse me, from around 1895, 1896 to 1900, right. where um, you know the Wizard of Oz is President William McKinley. Um, the yellow brick road is the gold standard, which leads to emerald City. Emerald City is paper money, so you have the whole thing of the gold standard being used to back and finance greenback paper money in in the book she, the The slippers are silver, so it 's silver walking on gold. This was symbolizing um, something called the free silver movement, which is is the same sort of thing as the gold standard um, It was an attempt to use silver. Um, to to back paper money. You have the whole idea of the farm being whizzed away by a tornado. There was a massive depression in 1896. The tornado symbolizes foreclosure. Um, You have the American farmer who is is scarecrow. You have the American laborer who is tin man. He is immobile. Again, in 1896, depression laid off laborers left and right. He's immobile, suffering uh, unemployment. He has to be oiled up to get him back to work, to get him moving again. Um, this is represented, representing the oil companies such as Rockefeller Standard Oil, which put the American laborer back to, back to work. Um, you have the cowardly lion as a representation of Eugene Debs or Williams Jennings Bryant, who was, um, McKinley's, um, socialist, uh, Bryant was his Democratic challenger. Eugene Debs was a socialist challenger. Right. They will all bark, no bite. So you have, um, you 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 have um, the cowardly lion who is meaningless, you know, you know exactly that just a meaningless you know hot air challenger. You have um, the two little dancing guilds, the lollipop guild representing the await you know the budgeting um, unionized labor movement, the lullaby league. They're sleeping yet up, uh, waking up, waking um, up. This is the women's suffrage movement. So with 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 Wizard of Oz, you have this very political allegory, but then you also have. On a deeper level, there's sort of what I call in the book initiation into the mysteries, Gnostic awakening, Gnostic epiphany, Gnostic revelation, where you have Dorothy Gale being swept away to this magical land. She goes up the ladder of Mithras, up the winding staircase of King Solomon's middle chamber, which is the tornado, to go to this magical land. This is paralleled in The Wizard, excuse me, in Alice in Wonderland. It's the same story, only she goes down the rabbit hole to experience this magical land. Um, according to Blavatsky, you have to be initiated into the mysteries. You have to have intelligence, fortitude, and courage. This is why Dorothy's three souljourners are seeking a brain, a heart, and courage or fortitude. Um, you have her walking on the golden path of religion, which leads to the false messiah, the demiurge. Um, you know the, the the false god of Gnosticism. Hmm. This the the, the part of Gnosticism was the whole idea that the god the, the god of the Abrahamic faiths. Um, what was it? Was the demiurge, this lesser god, the god of the material world? So you have her walking on the golden path of religion. It leads to the false Messiah. Um, it's it's the little man behind the curtain who is basically using fear and intimidation to scare his worshipper. You know to scare the populace into worshiping him. um... And, and you have the whole idea of um, Dorothy, you know, receiving Gnosis, receiving Epiphany, which for her is there's no place like home. Um, and she, she finally returns home. And of course, no one understands her mystical journey. No one understands her Gnostic revelation, but she's better off because of it. So you have this initiation into the Gnostic mysteries. Um, and then you also have the whole idea. This is really interesting with um, the two good witches who want to help. Dorothy on her, you know, on her journey of revelation. They're of the north and south. This is because one moves up the ladder of wisdom to receive Gnosis. Um, the two women who oppose her, once killed off right away, are the east and west. You don't receive revelation. You don't receive wisdom by moving left and right. That's symbolizing stagnation. So the two evil women, the two women who use the left-hand path magic, um, they're of the east and west. The two white magicians the two women who use the white magic they are of the north and south, symbolizing ascension on the ladder of wisdom, the ladder of Minerva, the ladder of Mithras, the winding staircase. Uh, so within the Wizard of Oz, you have this very um, deep political allegory, but then you also have this esoteric tradition, um, which I call in the book sort of initiation into the mysteries, Gnostic epiphany going on, um, which for Dorothy Gale is the revelation that there's no place like home, and um, again, she realizes this is carted off back home, and is much more smarter than the quote-unquote profane masses who don't understand her journey. They kind of make fun of it, but in the end, she's wiser off and knows knows she's smarter than them at that point. Wow, there's
5: just you know, watching something like The Wizard of Oz, you would just this this kind of kind of heartwarming children's story in in a sense you know you would just never think that there's so many levels to this and i always kind of knew that the book uh later when i I was in college you know i realized that the book was a was a political allegory but never did i think in a million years that this kind of stuff existed in it It,
4: it, yeah no no go ahead i'm sorry
5: oh no go ahead with your point no
4: it's it's it it was it was a um was it was a, it was a, 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 a detailed study um, you know uh, and I, I was glad to incorporate it into the book. I was real happy with the way it came out and um, yeah I mean there's a lot going on in The Wizard of Oz No question about it.
5: It's pretty amazing uh, here's the big the big one that I want to talk about, and that is Star Wars. And of course, that's very timely. We got we got Zach in here with his like his Star Wars short and his his Star Wars shirt and his uh, Star Wars jacket because he just saw <laughs> the movie not so long ago. Have you seen the new movie, by the way?
4: No, Where- I haven't. I'm probably going to go, um, probably see it this week. I'm going to try to get to see it before Christmas. Um, I have plans on seeing it. Um, I have actually seen every one of the Star Wars movies in the theater. Um, I've seen, I saw all of them in the theater. I mean, I've watched them subsequently on TV, of course, you know, I mean, I have the Blu-rays and the DVDs here, but I've actually seen every one of the star Wars movies in the theater and I'm planning on probably going this week. I'm going to try, try to go before, before Christmas, right. um, to, to, to see the force awakens. But so alas, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I, I'm told there's a lot of symbolism in it. Um, but again, I, there I is. couldn't, I couldn't, you know, if you've seen it, don't spoil me. Um, you know, don't give anything away, but, um, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. I've heard the reviews are very good on it. Um, but, but no, I I haven't seen it, but I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing the force awakens.
5: Well, what I want to talk about it with the original star Wars films, and it's very much in this new one is this idea of the heroic monomyth. And I really want you to explain that term of what that means, the, the idea of monomyth.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the term monomyth comes from the works of an American mythologist and symbolist named Joseph Campbell. Um, and Campbell wrote a book um, called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, and the hero that he's talking about, the hero that has a thousand faces, is best described as the sun god. The solar savior, the solar Um, archetype—you know, Horus, Apollo, Hercules—and it's 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 a solar hero, Um, and his journey has certain things that are unique to it and that are inescapable, um, according to Campbell. Um, And you will find these elements and these components turning up in the original star Wars movies, these are episodes four five and six. Um, and th- this, is no surprise. I mean, and what I'm saying here is no coincidence. Um, George Lucas has stated on many, many interviews that the first three star Wars movies are come out of the world of Joseph Campbell. So th- this isn't, this isn't anything, you know, er, you know, shocking or something I'm, you know, pulling out of a hat or stretching one or anything. Um, in fact, um adam the the copy of a uh, of the hero with a thousand faces that i have in my library on its dust jacket actually has a testimonial on it from george lucas basically saying if it wasn't for this book star wars wouldn't exist so we have in the so, so that's what the term monomyth is the monomyth is the solar journey the solar hero's journey and on this journey what happens to him and according to campbell there are certain things that are inescapable um, that happened to him on this solar journey, and you will find these components, uh, these elements turning up in the Star Wars movies, you will find them turning up in the Harry Potter stories, some some movies have more than others, some leave some out, some bend them around a little bit, but by and large, a lot of them are there. Um, of course, directors and writers and producers have leeway to, to interpret this Um, numerous ways. We always have to bear that in mind. But by and large, you will find these components in the Star Wars movies. You will find them in um, the Harry Potter films. You will find them in the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, You will find them in the Matrix movies. Um, The the same themes occurring over and over again. And it's because the hero is a solar savior. Um, He is a, a figure who is plucked out of the general populace. Who is sent on a, a spiritual quest mission uh, like Jesus to defeat some dark evil lord of some kind. Um, you know, whether it be the devil, whether it be the and you know, it's a savior mission. Luke Skywalker is saving the universe from the Empire. Neo is saving mankind from the dark machines. Frodo Baggins is saving Middle Earth from Sauron. Harry Potter is saving the wizarding world from Vordemont. It's the same thing. Jesus is saving mankind from the devil um, and pr- promising everlasting life. Same story, repackaged with different names. Um, and 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 Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, um, in Matrix. These are movies I took on in cinema symbolism. But the, but that, in a nutshell, is what the Joseph Campbell monomyth is, and what the term monomyth means. Right.
5: It, it... Did you want to add something to that,
4: Rob? Yeah,
7: I, I guess I was just kind of curious if the um, the sort of coming of age growth of the the lead character is a big part of that because it seems to be a similarity between all the examples you have there.
4: Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, the, the question was fading. I couldn't hear it. I'm sorry.
7: Oh, it's just asking if um the 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 growth of the of the main character the, or the uh, the coming of age type of thing if that was part of the monomyth as well.
4: Yes, I mean the the maturity of the character. Um, is usually part, part of the story, um, and of course, you know, I mean, I mean it's it's the character becomes wiser as um, the 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 you know or, or becomes more informed as the story goes along. I mean, you know, Luke Skywalker eventually learns who Darth Vader is. Um, you know, Fro, Fro, Frodo Baggins, um, you know, comes comes to realize, you know, you know who who and what is behind the One Ring. Um, you know, you know, it, it and the, the, these, these characters are always assisted, you know, Harry Potter comes to learn, you know, about the scar on his head. Um, and it's the same sort of thing, you know, the characters are always growing, um, always learning new things along the way. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that's an important component of it is one of the things that Campbell talks about is, is what he calls meeting with the hermit. Um, that very early on in the, in the hero's journey, he meets this eccentric hermit figure who always sort of possesses the knowledge, but only doles it out piecemeal. Um, and, and, you know, the character looks the same. I mean, it's the same character. I mean, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. Um, when Kenobi dies, it's p- the mantle's picked up by Yoda. It's Gandalf the Grey in The Hobbit. It's, um, Albus Dumbledore in the Harry Potter films. I mean, it's the old Greybeard f- figure. Um, so yes, the imparting of wisdom. Um, the imparting of sacred knowledge um, definitely helps the hero along his journey, and, and and the hero eventually comes to realize his savior qualities. I mean, you know, you know, what what is it Morpheus? I mean, Neo is is one of these. You know, what is it Morpheus tells him? You know, he is the one. You know, and then when when Neo realizes it, this is when he can defeat the you know the agents. Um. So yeah, I mean, this is all all, all part of the monomyth, no question about it.
5: I want to ask about one theme in Star Wars, and I think everybody in this room. You Knows Darth Vader is Luke's father, so there's no spoilers there. I don't <laughs> think. No, but, I, I uh, hope not. Yeah, by this point, <laughs> yeah, by this point yeah. yeah, not since yeah. 1980. But this this concept of I've always found that fascinating in the Star Wars, the original Star Wars trilogy, the concept of father and son, and this aspect of of I guess Joseph Campbell's monomyth. You know, what does that mean? What's some of the what's some of the archetypes there? Yeah,
4: I mean, I mean, one one of the powerful archetypes is sort of it's something I mentioned earlier. It's what's called the ogre father, um, and it's sort of the redemption of the, of, of the father figure, um, where where the son has to it you know the son has to lead the father back on the right course, um, and it, it is it, it's the father son relationship. It's, it's 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 archetypal figures. It's, it's the sun, you know, escaping the shadow of his father quite literally in, in Star Wars. Um, I mean, even the name Darth Vader, the name the name Vader is German for father, um, hmm. you know, Vater. Right. Um, so so, you know, it, it literally, his name literally means dark father. But the ogre father figure. Um, is, is definitely an archetypal figure. Darth Vader is one of the more prevalent ones. If you wish to see this character in other movies, um, um, some examples that, that really scream off the, uh, off the page to me um, is uh, the, the Daniel Day-Lewis character, um, Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood. Um, it's the same sort of relationship he has with his son. Um, unfortunately, at the end, um, you know, as the title figures, the son isn't able to redeem the father. Um, you know, you know, in that one. Um, if you want to see the father-son relationship, where the you know Star Wars aside, I mean, and it's it's a lot. It's a movie that, believe it or not, um, has a lot of the same archetypes in it as Star Wars, and actually has some of the same um, themes in it. As crazy as it's going to sound, is a Western um, starring John Wayne called Red River. Um, um, this has the exact same theme of. The redemption of the father by the son, the the father's John Wayne, um, and he goes astray and the son ultimately redeems him at, at, at the end. I want to say Red River came out in the, in the 40s, maybe 50s. Um, so if you want to see the redemption of the father, this archetype again, take a look at the John Wayne movie, Red River. Um, so no, th- th- this is something that um, is it, is a very powerful archetype, and, it's, and the redemption of the father, it's usually called atonement with the father, is part of the monomyth. Um and and uh, you know, you, you, you will find this um in, in, in these in these monomythic um themes. I mean even even in the in the Matrix movies, you know, where Neo has to come to terms with the architect or or comes to term at, terms at the end of part three with, you know, Deuce ex Machina. Um I mean it's the same sort of thing. It's the reconciliation with the ogre father, um where, where in a way the, the the father is redeemed in, in the end.
5: Right, and it seems especially in Empire Strikes Back that that is heavily laden I mean it it's like Luke has to Darth Vader is this thing that he has to overcome, and then at the end he finds out Darth Vader is his father, and, and there's some very deep levels of uh, very deep levels of meaning there
4: yeah, absolutely i mean i mean it's 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 the redemption of the father um and it's usually the redemption usually occurs in a way that that is not expected um like for example you know you know in in jedi um luke redeems the father not by killing him or not by turning to the dark side but he does something that neither darth vader or the emperor anticipate and that is he turns vader back to the good side um and it's the same it's the it's the same thing in the matrix um neo convinces the machines to kill agent smith something that Agent Smith doesn't anticipate. Um, And and, and it's the same thing with Harry Potter. Um, I'd have to go back and watch Deathly Hallows again, part two. But he convinces the the Death Eaters to turn against Vordemont at the end. And it's something that's never anticipated. Um, Sauron is the same thing. He never figures that a little hobbit is going to sneak into Mordor and toss the ring into Mount Doom. The the, the evil figure um, is always outwitted by the hero, in the way that the, you know, he anticipates, that the villain anticipates everything, but the way that ultimately undoes him. Um, and that's another theme in all this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I mean the, the Star Wars movies, especially the first three, um, right. especially, you know, and I say, I, I mean, chronologically, especially four, five, and six really deal with a lot of the uh, monomythic themes of Campbell. But, again, th- th- this is no surprise. Um, Lucas has talked about this in, in numerous interviews. Well,
5: without giving anything away about the new movie about Episode 7 that, you know, I saw it last night and I'd heard some reviews about it or read some reviews that it was kind of a rehash of some people weren't satisfied about it some of the critics because it was they thought that it was a rehash of the first movie. <laughs> but as I was watching it and especially after only have read read written, written that part of your book only a week before watching the movie, I kept Joseph Campbell in mind. And the hero monomyth is very evident throughout. And of course you're going to have some of those same thing those same themes because those themes are universal.
4: Right. So it sounds like basically they took the the monomythic themes in the force one and are just rehashing them for episode seven, eight, and nine is kind of what it's it's sounding like. Yeah,
5: because you have Yeah, I haven't
4: seen it yet, I'll, but I'll keep that in mind when I watch it.
5: Right. Because you have I mean, I think you can tell by the previews and such that you have these younger characters and then you have these older characters, the characters from the original movies that are I guess in that same like the Hermes Tresmegistus characters for these for the the guides for these new characters. So it's very right, interesting. Right, I understand. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Like I said, I I have not seen it yet, but, you know, you figured at some point in time, I mean, you know, and I just kind of figured this, um, and I I haven't seen the movie, so I could be dead wrong here, but you figure if they were going to do 7, 8, and 9, that sort of the Luke Skywalker would now be sort of the Kenobi figure. Um, That's the way I would see it. I don't know if I'm right or not. I haven't seen the movie, but I remember remember watching, um, when I remember watching episodes um, 4, 5, and 6, you know, of course, when Luke defeats Vader and burns him, of course, you know, he's standing there and all the ghosts are there. I mean, Luke is clearly the inheritor of the mantle of, of you know, Yoda and Kenobi. I don't know if it turns out that way, but that's the way it would seem to me at any rate.
5: Right. And one of the other movies that I want to ask about, and this is one that I saw a couple of years ago, or about four years ago now, was uh, Black Swan and Aronofsky. is probably one of my favorite film directors and this guy you talk about whether this is meant or whether it's like subconscious Aronofsky definitely puts these themes in his movies Uh, especially in well, the movie that he did after Black Swan, which was Noah, which I don't know if you've seen. But Black Swan was very interesting. And you talk about in the book about the the dark aspect of of the goddess in the book. I thought that was very interesting itself.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean Black Swan I think is a real masterpiece. I mean I mean that movie is just I mean, you have so much going on in that movie. There's so many levels going on in that um when i was writing cinema symbolism the the book that's out now there is a very strong um theme of the of jungian psychology it's the conscious ego the white swan trying to reconcile the shadow personality which is the black swan which is she she really, she really can't do it um it's one or the other um and this is whole this whole thing is played out with the mirrors um you know all the characters are introduced in, through, through their reflection in a mirror um you have a lot of archetypes um, in this movie, in fact, they're all archetypes, um, you know, and again, young, yes. young, you know, talked about um, archetypes being embedded, um, being reflections of the tarot. Um, I mean, we have all the tarot cards um, in, in in this uh, in this movie. We have the Natalie Portman character, as the moon reversed. We have Leroy as the devil. We have um, Winona Ryder is the self-destructive power power uh, card. We have um, the juggler, um, which is uh, Mila Kunis, the Lilith character. Um, she 's the dark goddess figure, has the um, dark demonic black tattoo wings on her back, symbolizing this this dark trickster goddess lilith um, what what I, I did was when I was writing cinema symbolism there, there, this is like the Wizard of Oz. There are multiple levels going on in Black Swan. When I wrote cinema symbolism, there, I talked about the Jungian aspects of this. I talked about the you know the archetypes. Um, of Black Swan, the conscious ego and the shadow, um, the 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 tarot, um, the mirrors. Uh, the, these were themes that I, I talked, I, I really delved into in cinema symbolism. There is also a very deep alchemical um, theme in 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 Black Swan. I mean, in the end, she she the, the Nina Sayers character is perfecting alchemy. Um, she's transitioning into this bird-like monstrous. Creature, yet she's very sexual and very graceful, um, away from the repressed, you know, virgin character that, that, that she is through, throughout most of the movie. Um, you know, it's, it, and it's an alchemical transition. Um, when I was writing cinema symbolism, the alchemical storyline didn't fit in. Um, I can't explain it. It's not like The Wizard of Oz where I could, I could do one and then talk about the other. It, it just didn't jive. Um, it, it was, it was, it was something that was like telling the story twice and I just couldn't get it in. So when, when I, when I was writing, when I was writing the black swan portion, I thought, okay, I'll include the archetypes and, you know, the subconscious, excuse me, the conscious ego, the shadow self, the tarot, some of the the, the mirror imagery, um, I'll incorporate all this in, but I'm actually writing cinema symbolism too now, and I'm delving into this entirely different alchemical storyline that is very prevalent um, in Black Swan as well. But I've I've never seen Noah, um, but I I, I know for a fact, I mean, mean, Black Swan is one of those movies like the Matrix movies, and... um, and, and you, know, the, the, you know, Star Wars, I mean, that, that material is intentionally placed, um, no question about it, and, and especially the alchemical storyline. I mean, Ar- Aronofsky really nails that out of the park um, when it comes to symbolic, symbolic alchemy. I mean, he, he just nails a grand slam on that. I, I, lo- I think Black Swan is a tremendous movie. It is an incredibly dark movie. Um, I don't think it people is. realize how, how dark that movie is. Yeah, it really th- th- is. There, there are certain themes in that movie that are, that are just really, I mean, that, that really, you know, I mean, I, I think of just how dark they are. I mean, um, you know, I mean, you're, you're looking like at a movie, like the exorcist comes to mind, um, ju- just, just how, 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 dark that movie is. Um, and, and it's a movie that I took on, um, in cinema symbolism and I'm real happy with the way it came out. But again, um, Adam, um, there was just so much in that that um, I'm actually doing uh, Black Swan, I guess you want to call it 2.0 <laughs> in, in, in uh, cinema symbolism, too. But no, I mean, Aronofsky's a master. I mean, he, he is like a, a modern day Stanley Kubrick almost. Um, yeah, I've never seen Noah. It's on, my, it's on my watch list, but uh, Black Swan is just a symbolic masterpiece.
1: Don't bother seeing Noah. <laughs> it's terrible. No, I, actually, I mean, <laughs> actually,
5: Noah, there's a lot in there, and I think a lot of it comes from Kabbalah
4: yeah well, i I've, I've been told i've never seen Noah, but i've heard people talk about it apparently apparently that the the spin on Noah is that the Jehovah character is presented as a Gnostic demiurge um is is my understanding yeah. of it, but i haven't seen it um, and the idea is that the Gnostic Demiurge is the lesser God so it's it's the, the the god so 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 the God that's trying to wipe out humanity is is a sort of you know lesser God figure that that that's my Understanding of it just from hearing people Talk about it but I have never seen Noah so I would have to hold, withhold Judgment until I've seen it it's on my watch List I, I just haven't gotten around to see it Yet
5: there's also this scene Where Anthony Hopkins plays Methuselah and Russell Crowe of course is Noah And he to, to Talk to God to have This vision to find out what he wants uh, Methuselah gives him this Kind of like ayahuasca like Uh, concoction and then noah hallucinates so it's it's pretty far from like kind of the mainstream of a biblical kind of movie so it's interesting (laughs) yeah what
4: what i'm surprised i'm surprised they didn't put enoch in it they should have had enoch Uh, if you want to talk to god talk talk to enoch they should have gone down that road
5: Uh, one i wanted to ask you about that's not in the book but i believe will be in the second book is eyes wide shut and this is one yes. that I just rewatched not too long ago, and it was far more interesting to me than I when I watched it like 15 years ago.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, 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 eyes Wide Shut. I know in your email you asked me about Hunger Games and Eyes Wide Shut. Hunger Games is again another slate of movies that I'm as on my to watch list, um, but I've not I've not watched one second of of the Hunger Games movies. Eyes Wide Shut's another story. Um, in Cinema Symbolism too, I have a chapter um, called The Illuminati in Film. And I'm, excuse me, breaking down not so much Eyes and Triangles in the background, but more, more of Illuminati-themed movies. Um, and one of the movies, of course, I'm taking on is Eyes Wide Shut. Um, I mean, this is Stanley Kubrick's last movie. Um, and I really think this is a very important movie. This movie is very symbolic, for starters. Um, and this, this, to me, is really the movie where um, Kubrick, to me, um, f- sort of throws down the gauntlet with the audience. Um, and, and he basically says, what, 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 I, what I believe Kubrick is, is conveying to the audience is he's going to make a movie that's intentionally boring. Um, I, I believe Eyes Wide – I mean, if, if you watch Eyes Wide Shut through a non-symbolic lens, I think you're, you're going to be bored with it. I mean, this was the criticism of the movie. It's right. boring. Um, Which is what I thought the first
5: time I saw it. I thought, this is terrible.
4: (laughs) Right. But if if you watch the movie symbolically, it's much more interesting and it's much more cool to watch. So And I believe that was intentionally done by Kubrick because, I I mean, if you watch a movie like The Shining, I mean, that damn thing is just overloaded with esoteric symbolism. And I think Kubrick with with Eyes Wide Shut is saying, you know, look, audience, if you don't watch this movie symbolically – I mean, it's it's like he's trying to teach you a lesson. I'm going to bore you to tears unless – you watch this damn movie symbolically. And, of course, we have um, – he lights the movie um, v- very much like a movie he made in the 1970s called Barry Lyndon. Um, it, the movie is very much lit just like Barry Lyndon. But, of course, you have this whole idea of, with this um, – and I'll get into this briefly. I don't want to give too much away because it is in, in cinema symbolism too. Right. But I don't mind you asking me about it. Um, um, you have the whole idea of the Christmas lights. Um, and, you know, everything, it, it, the movie's set around Christmas. Everything has these gaudy red, green, orange, blue Christmas lights in the background. And these lights are always surrounded by drugs, death, overdose, prostitution, you know, pedophilia. Um, and, and what Kubrick is showing you is, is, you know, it's Christmas time. This is supposed to be the joyous season. Yet these are the um, troubles that, you know, these are the evils of society. Um, and they don't go away. Uh, and just because it's Christmas time, they're always there. But these petty evils are just that. They're petty evils compared to when we get to the Illuminati temple, the quasi Masonic, you know, quote unquote OTO sex magic temple. This is where the real evil is. And when Cruz, Tom Cruise finally gets there, you will notice there are no Christmas lights anywhere. Yeah. I mean, Christmas is completely erased from the Illuminati. Masonic OTO sex mansion sex temple mansion um in eyes wide shut I mean you've got the the whole thing with the master you know you've got the magic circle there with the sex magic um the master of ceremonies is is casting the magic circle um bitter shins that's left-hand that's he's going counterclockwise that's left-hand path black magic so what kubrick is showing you is is whether this group exists or not um, I mean, in the in the movie they do. Whether there's really a group like this, Kubrick leaves it up to you to, to decide. But what Kubrick is showing you symbolically is the the evils and crimes of humanity: drugs, prostitution, homelessness, um, you, you know, uh, pedophilia, um, child abuse. These are nothing compared to the evils that this group is into. Um, and this is what he's symbolically showing you in Eyes Wide Shut. Um, it's a great movie. It's a great movie if you can watch it symbolically um, and and learn to watch it. It's a movie I'm taking on um, in 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 cinema symbolism too, um, and and uh, it is a it's a great study. Um, and, and it's a great movie when you watch it symbolically.
5: Yeah, I think there's a lot of levels to so a lot of Kubrick stuff. Uh, you know, he has so many symbolism in his movies, especially his last few. I had a ton of them. And, and the Hunger Games. I was going to bring that up. Uh, just because I really see that uh, Katniss in the movie, and I don't think you really need to even see the movie to even get this, is that she's obviously the goddess Diana.
4: Yeah, I mean, it looks that way. She's like the goddess of the hunt, the female lunar hero, uh, you know, the Princess Leia type figure. Um, yeah, I mean, it looks that way to me. But um, again, I, I've never seen one second of a Hunger Game movies. Again, it's on my to-do list. What, what, what's happening... Um, is that this is what happened in Cinema Symbolism. Um, I mean, it's no state secret. Um, I'm writing Cinema Symbolism 2, and there's more movies I wanted to talk about, Um, but again, the book would go on and on forever, so I'm actually, I'm I'm about probably four to six months away to finishing up Cinema Symbolism 2, but I've already started outlining Cinema Symbolism 3, and the Hunger Games movies are at the top of my list for uh, Cinema Symbolism 3, so.
5: Well, we are almost out of time, but before we go... I wanted you to touch on something uh kind of fun and interesting, and that is the symbolism behind the Smurfs.
4: <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well well for starters, um and before I before I go, I'd just like to give up my website. But let me just absolutely. start off real quick but by just saying thank you, Adam, and thank you guys for me on Conspiranormal. Normal. It was a great show. Um it was much appreciated me being here. I had a tremendous time. Um, yeah, the Smurfs, um, great study. People beat up on uh, Walt Disney all the time. Uh, the Smurfs have a ton of esoteric symbolism in it. Um, political allegories, magical allegories. Um, the Smurfs themselves are the perfect, uh, perfected communist society. They all dress the same. They all live in the same houses. Um, they all work without pay. They live rent-free. We have uh, Karl Marx himself, Papa Smurf. Um, who looks like uh, Karl Marx, um, he does, and, he he wears the, and he wears the red of the communists. Um, and pay attention, he wears actually the red Phrygian cap of the sans-coulos, the uh, proto-Marxists during the French Revolution. Um, so who is Gargamel? Well, you can interpret him as one of two ways. You can look at him as the materialistic West. I mean, who are the archenemies of the communists? We have the United States during the Cold War. So you can look at Gargamel as the materialistic West. Um, when Gargamel was introduced, um, he's trying to transmute gold, so we know he's into gold and materialism. Um, alternatively, he he dresses in black, lives in a quasi-Germanic little hovel there, which has, you know, castle-like with an alchemical set um, and a castle keep where he keeps his great satanic grimoire. Um, so you can look at him as Nazi Germany also, um, the, the enemy of the communists during um, uh, World War two And uh, yeah, I mean, we have some very deep cabalistic occult themes. Um, we have uh, Gargamel trying to, you know, un- un- undo the, c- the the Smurfs, you know, always trying to use subterfuge to, un- uh, you know, harm the little Smurfs' communist village. Um, he uses Kabbalah, he uses sorcery to create a Kabbalistic golem out of a lump of clay. Um, this is Smurfette, the little the little female Smurf. Um, she-, she is a Frankenstein-like golem um, created out of a lump of clay. He sends her into the the Smurf village to sow discord and chaos. Um, The Smurfs don't know what the hell to do with her um, other than she's causing massive problems. Um, Papa Smurf um, eventually catches wind of this and uses white magic to to transmute um, Smurfette into the, you know, the blonde-haired, white, high-heeled Smurfette that we all know and love. When Smurfette's introduced, she looks like Frankenstein's monster. I mean, she's got the broad forehead, the the long black hair. Um, you know, kind of freakish looking, um, but then she's transmuted into the blonde-haired, uh, you know, white-hide-heeled um, Smurfette that we all know and love. And, you know, you know, we have Gargamel as the satanic black magician with the alchemical set, the grimoires galore, um, the great book of black magic in his basement. So, I mean, we have a lot of political allegory. I mean, I know Walt Disney is repeatedly beat up on this material, um, but the Smurfs have it just as much. Um, it's a great study. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's a great story. I talk about it in Cinema Symbolism. I revisit the Smurfs also in Cinema Symbolism, too. Um, one of my all-time favorite talking points. Check out the Smurfs.
5: <laughs> and, Robert, please give out your website and also where people can get your books as well.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, thank you, Adam, for having me and guys on a Conspira Normal*. Absolutely. I thought it was a tremendous show. I, I really you. appreciate you having me on. Um, and when *Cinema Symbolism* two comes out, well, we'll do this all over again. Um, no question. If you're interested, if you if you like if you like what you heard tonight, um, definitely check out my website. It's the easiest way to find me um, on the internet. <laughs> um, it's www. My name is Robert W Sullivan IV, so it's Robert W IV. dot com that's the letter i the letter v.com um from there there are links to buy the books you can buy the paperbacks they're on amazon they're on barnes and noble you can get the the kindles um the nooks the well, right now when, when this interview airs the ebooks are actually on sale right now um they're discounted to 6.99 that sale is only good through the holidays so don't wait get get that now um the ebooks are much cheaper than the paperbacks um, you know, it's on Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook. You can get them in the Apple iBookstore. Go to www.robertwsullivanivy.com. Links there to buy the books. Um, links there for my social media, Facebook fan pages, Twitter, YouTube channel, where you can listen and watch some other TV shows I've done, podcasts I've done, radio shows I've done. It's all there. It's very easy to navigate. Links to buy the books, www.robertwsullivanivy.com.
5: Well, thank you, Robert, for coming on. It's been very lightning. It's a very interesting subject. And just stay on the line for us. We're just going to close this out, and guys, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal.
1: Welcome back, Conspiranormalians. Did you love that? Did you love it? Well, uh, <laughs> so, so so there there was a couple there was a couple of movies I was thinking of. Uh, you know, while he was talking, you know, like not another teen movie or. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I
3: I tell you when he when he started talking about the whole light and day thing I re, the new stars movie really came into mind to me because like more so than even in the original movies there was that like struggle between dark and light not only in one character but in several characters and just in yeah. the movie itself. yeah and it uh, that so that really that really brought that to mind when when he started talking about the whole light and day thing.
5: Right, I thought it was interesting too. Like we talk about the hero monomyth, and just to make the point on the new movie, you get that with not one but two characters in this one. Yeah, so I like the again. No, not giving anything away. The, yeah.
7: the the random movies I didn't expect like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, I didn't expect that either, <laughs> which I absolutely love. But I, you didn't expect right. there to be any kind of depth to it other than the 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 yeah, witty, that... wittiness
1: of the the humor itself. You I, know? I, I was disappointed to hear that he didn't review. Uh, Dude, where's my car? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a lot in
3: that. The, the yeah. mono myth behind Ashton Kutcher's character. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, it was very deep. Like, you guys might not get it, but... <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I,
5: I guess not.
3: <laughs> I mean, if you want to, like, get real into it, I guess you can, but... All in all, I think it's just a goofy movie.
1: I mean, you, you if you tried, you could make symbolism out of any movie, really. Yeah, you could. Yeah, not, not, to, not to discredit him in any way, because he's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of... I could see, obviously, that a lot of producers... Uh, implant this kind of thing into the movies because it, it provides like a basis uh, for, you know, attraction toward the movie. Right. A lot of them are, are students of literature and
5: mythology too. Right. So they do like consciously incorporate yeah. those kind of themes in, but what I wanted to do tonight, guys, as we kind of in the final moments, um, I wanted to go over the, uh, I believe we're really got like thirty three shows of this uh this year. And yes, I did that on purpose. I realized <laughs> we're gonna get to thirty-three I just had to incorporate that number in somehow. <laughs> but uh I I'm just gonna go down the list of some of the guests that we've had on, just gonna the shows that we've had on since January. And Rob kind of wrote some things down and, and Luke just uh
1: I, I just, yeah, just drank and got drunk and just said, forget about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's yeah. my part in this show. <laughs> yeah, man. To not do anything. You do it somehow though. <laughs> you do,
5: you do. <laughs>
3: There's no one better for the job.
5: All right. Well, thanks. Unfortunately, Zach, Thad McCracken was last year, so we're not going to include him on that, what but you that know, we, we, we talked a little bit about the nipple sucking and uh, <laughs> learning how to brush your teeth. Uh, so, we started out the year. And this is episode 101. So we started out the year with episode 68. And that was the guest that we had on that was suggested by John Tenney, who was our last guest of 2014. That was Craig Chicone. Uh talk about the assassinations of the 1960s. We talked about like Martin Luther King, uh uh Robert Kennedy, Maker Evers, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton was also a big one in that one.
7: Fred Hampton, that was my favorite part of the show. I'd never heard yeah, of any of that.
5: Right, exactly. And I think that was one, uh, that was one, uh, still one of your earlier shows, Rob. And I think you guys, like you and, and Luke learned a lot on that on that show. Absolutely. I and no and so did I, I, really.
7: I didn't know it went that deep. Like, I mean, right. obviously I knew about Kennedy and, you know, Martin Luther King. And that was pretty much it. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Right, and I, that's I, what most people probably know, you know from that, from that, from that time period. So mm-hmm. he really done his research and, and, and he packaged
1: it, it in a way that's really sen- like sensational without being, you know, corrupt the information being corrupted any way, Right.
5: Right. Exactly. And he's still working on a book about Fred Hampton. The you wanted to say about that one or,
7: uh, no, just that I was blown away by like how much I learned, that I didn't even know that I yeah. obviously didn't know,
5: but yeah, we need to have Craig back on. He he's, he's a real interesting guy. Uh, followed by episode 69 <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh,
5: yeah. where we did a special uh where we did a special introduction this was an interesting show not just because it was episode 69 but because we had dr fetzer on james fetzer and we talked about sandy hook and some of the boston bombing theories and this was the show that uh i think rob I think you were there for this one i think yeah. it was me and luke
7: no i was there for or you were there for
5: yeah. that one and, and he had uh this was a show that, you know, everything was kind of going well. And then all of a sudden he started going into Holocaust denial.
7: Yeah. <laughs> and, well, that's how I know I was there because I remember the look on your face. Yeah. I was I just
5: like
3: you telling me about that.
5: Was, and I was like, what? Right. Yeah. It, it just was yeah. like this, but this was somehow, this was somehow to prove that he wasn't anti-Semitic, <laughs> <laughs> which well, I'm still trying to grasp that. That 1, that
1: one million uh, pile of dead Jew bodies. That wasn't real. All those pictures, they were photoshopped the yeah, Photoshop.
5: I, I just, you know, I, but it was an interesting show nonetheless, and we have... And I,
7: and I do like um, anything that has to do with false flags, because I think it's so important to keep your eye on, right. you know, from a, a civic responsibility type of viewpoint.
5: Right, I mean, definitely the Sandy Hook stuff is interesting mm-hmm. as well. Uh, episode 70, that was February, that was uh, Tracy Twyman, and I remember... It, it was you and I for that one, the clock shavings. Mm-hmm. And we talked about her experiments with a Ouija board and talking to Baffle Met and to Kane and these different kind of, you know, for I would mm-hmm. say lack of a better term, demons that she was talking to and Satan and Satan
7: directly to Satan. Yeah. I
5: mean, this was, this was an interesting show to say the least. And, uh, and a lot of it had to do kind of with the, uh, the Merovingian mythos and the Priory of Sion, which is something, and the Knights Templars, which is something she 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 was really into. Uh, she's got a new book out too, so I try to get her back on. Uh, episode seventy one, we had Craig Ciccone back. That was originally supposed to have been Captain K. Captain K. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember I couldn't get, and this was the late February, and I couldn't get, we couldn't get in touch with him. He just was MIA, probably went back to
1: Mars. and He was on a secret mission. So
5: I had Craig to come on because I wanted to kind of respond to from episode 69 where Dr. Fetzer denied the Holocaust and to kind of talk <laughs> about like what the proofs were for the Holocaust because Craig's an historian. And even though that wasn't his specialty, you know, he still knew some some things about it. And so did I. So we could kind of. But we kind of that kind of ended up being kind of like another history lessons show too, as well. Yeah, that's good since I missed history. Yeah,
1: you've, well, you you slept through most of it, right? Yeah, I did.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoy history. Or, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's where we differ.
1: <laughs> or I was just being a jackass all through.
5: So I don't,
1: I don't Cl- clowning around and and, and, and and like
5: cutting farts in the middle of the room, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Pictures, but God knows what. Yeah, disturbing pictures. Episode seventy-one.
7: Uh, no, just that. Uh, actually, I wasn't going to bring up the the Holocaust denial unless you did.
5: <laughs> okay, I got you. That's <laughs> uh, <you know>, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, episode seventy-two. That's Doctor Future. Uh, first time he was on during this year. Uh, that was in March. That was uh, talking about Jewish ritual magic, and this was just uh talking about some of the. Uh, subjects that he was he had come up with on his doing his book series and especially his book about uh uh it, it was about judaism and its holy wars and now he's followed that up with christianity and it's holy wars and this was just kind of about uh jewish magic like kabbalah and kind of like how influential it is in, in, in israel right now and this was uh pretty pretty
1: eye-opening i think I don't think you were there I for that there, one either. No, but, but I mean, I I have read like a bunch of occult books about Kabbalah, and it's it's super interesting stuff.
5: Episode seventy three. Uh, that's Peter Goodgame. That's uh, from a book that he actually wrote in two thousand one. Good game. Called the Globalists and the Islamists, and he actually didn't release it until the earlier this year. Good game, guys. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that actually we the first time we'd ever called Hawaii and i remember on that show there was like this oh, weird like hawaiian and stuff. bird and stuff in the <laughs> yeah. background yeah right. it, also,
7: it also had luke as the uh the rap intro yeah uh, oh, that, oh yeah yeah, dude, was
5: was the, yeah. <laughs> check out line girl <laughs> baby, baby you're so five. <laughs> oh
1: god why do you make me do this stupid? Thing? <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're you're willing to do it so and
5: this was uh and this was just about like the the how the globalists uh have kind of influenced the Islamists and the Islamic brotherhood and how possibility of, of, of promoting constant war in the Middle East has kind of uh, lent itself to the population control agenda, which I know Luke is all about. Yeah.
1: Which is, yeah. Which comes
5: out later in the show. Episode 74. (laughs) This was in April uh, Walter, Walter Bosley. It's the first time we had Walter on. And this was about uh, empire of the will. And this is about his uh, three, three book series on that. Uh, talk about some of the ritualistic occult murders, uh, that he discovered in 1915 in San Bernardino, California.
7: Yeah. Crazy connections.
5: Yeah. I remember from that. that Right. And and interesting in the light of the, in the light of what just happened there earlier in this month, uh, and how he had been saying that in 2015, something was going to happen. Uh, Followed up by episode 75, and this was Eric Altman, and yeah. this was about Bigfoot.
7: That was one of my favorites. And that was one of
5: Ross' <laughs> favorites. The, the, the crypto stuff. <laughs> stuff. It's very interesting because we talked a lot about the hoaxes and uh, different kinds of like what, how he feels what Bigfoot might be, and then all, all kinds of interesting things like that. Is there mm-hmm. anything you wanted to add on that one?
7: Uh, no, just, I wish we could we should get him back at some point. Oh, yeah. He was a lot yeah. of fun to talk to, and it's, uh, there's a lot of. Uh, Like you said, it was a really, um, really well-balanced kind of perspective on on the whole thing. Like, you know, he he feels a lot the way I think that I feel about it, that there's, it's a very, very interesting type of a a psychological phenomena, if not, you know, something deeper.
5: And it might say something, yeah, it says something about human psychology as well. Yeah, yeah. And then also like more... um, like their rang pin deck and more kind of things that may could possibly be more, real right. Or, or things that are from fun. our,
7: our recent past that are sort of a, a, um, just a collective memory type of thing.
5: And the next day, actually, uh, episode 76, we did an interview, our first interview with Dr. Heiser. And we talked about his book, uh, the facade and just among some other, other subjects. I and mean, Dr. Heiser is always very, very, um, knowledgeable on a lot of different things and also uh how zachariah sitchin was wrong yeah he dead wrong
7: that that that, <laughs> was, that was a really fun episode because i mean I, I you know i watched ancient aliens and i, I find that yeah. kind of stuff really interesting but it's 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 way more fun listening to somebody who can actually like
1: translate dead languages and knows what they they really mean right no, exactly he's, he's wrong sitchin's right <laughs> and, and just Zucarillos and all the other guys. Zucarillos, Zuclos, <laughs> <Zuc-als>. shut up! <laughs> all the guys on Ancient Aliens are they're, right. They're all right. right. Every single one of them, dude. You know, yeah. I just know it. Okay. They're on
3: TV. Yeah, they're There's on
1: the no History one. Channel. It's true history.
5: Oh, uh, followed that one up with episode seventy-seven, and actually, I think this one was just me because it was on a Saturday morning. Uh, Rob, you were working, and Luke. Um, I don't know. You were in a ditch somewhere, possibly. This <laughs> uh, this was this was, uh, this was Gons and Basil from Cry Radio, and a couple of great guys. Uh, good, uh, also good friends of the show, and also kind of uh, also inspired by Future Quake, like I was to, to to do a show. And we talked about transhumanism. You know, we talked about some different like you know, Christian aspects on that show. Uh, got a lot of downloads on that one. Uh, really great guys to have on. Episode seventy eight. That's uh, late May. That's Laird Scranton, and that was point of origin in the science of the Dogon. Uh, Dude, that was
1: awesome. Yeah, that was
5: yeah, a fun one. yeah. Laird was the one we talked about uh, uh, about cosmology and about Göbekli Tepe, and uh, this, th- which is a uh, ancient site in Turkey that is supposedly like I think like ten thousand years old. And yeah. he's and, looking at it from as like a, it's uh, almost sort of like if there was an ancient civilization that perished, that this that this site was kind of a way to jumpstart civilization and, back and up. And there's again. and
1: the archaeologists like still today are still uncovering like new stuff from Göbekli Tepe and debating the age of it as well. Huh. Right? What was wasn't he like? Um, he was kind of comparing
7: a lot of ancient sort of um cultures and their their cosmologies and tying them together through like some like. Uh, earlier type of thing
5: right yes, yes, and, and also different and, and, and different uh different areas because like the Dogon are a, a north Af- uh, African tribe in the sahara that 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 has some similarities to some of their mythology is similar to the ancient ancient Egypt and also ancient China, and he was also saying that there's also in uh, Scotland some ruins that are kind of similar as well uh, we follow that up with in the beginning of June. Uh, with dr john ward and we talked about egypt egyptology and symbolism uh that one i had uh robert hyde sat in with me on that one and that was uh dr ward we talked a lot about uh yeah, what, what what didn't we talk about like his experiences in ancient Egypt we talked about Dr. John D we talked about Alistair Crowley cuz you got to talk about Alistair Crowley at least through every three, every three yeah. shows and you know Mr. Crowley <laughs> and so yeah we talked and we also talked about like since he uh, at the time he's he was in Sweden but he lives part of the year in Sweden part of the year in, in Egypt and we talked about some of the being a Western, a Westerner, non-American that lives in the Middle East, and kind of his perspective of what's going on on the ground there. So that was that was very interesting too. Uh, Episode eighty, that was with Rocky, Rocky Stucci. Rocky Stucci, you know, don't don't mess with Rocky Stucci. You know what I'm saying?
1: (laughs) I'm gonna break your neck if you do.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Shout out, Rocky. (laughs) That was actually an appearance. uh, It was me and Rob. That was an appearance that we did on his show ebn talk radio at the time which is now ebn special report and rocky is the head of the ipbn network fm that we are also on big friend of the show big friend of the show yeah we just had rocky on on the uh 100th episode in the uh, skype calls part of it uh so yeah very great we talked a lot about like i think on that show i talked a lot about conspiracy and how i felt like the roots of conspiracy uh came about with uh the opium wars and the uh, uh, skull and bone society and, and, yeah. and such as that. I so, you know got to explore some of that a little bit. Uh, episode 81. Uh, this was Dr. Barry Taff. I called this one a life of Barry's parapsychology. This was a big deal for me to get Barry Taff on the show because he, uh, I think this was one. I think I'm, I, I did this by myself because you were, you were on your way to Rob, you were on your way to Bonnaroo to work. And then Luke was a uh, spending poi. And, uh, I, he was, he was, a uh, he was in a pagan ritual at that point.
1: Well, for real. And,
5: yeah. And, uh, Wait, where yeah, was I? you were at the, uh, Parthenon, I think. Oh, yeah. You're spending, you're out there spending fire. watching, you getting your EDM on? And, awesome. uh, but Dr. Taff, <laughs> Dr. Taff was one of the, is a parapsychologist and he was involved in the original entity case, uh, where a woman in Southern California, have been plagued by a uh, different uh, uh, poltergeist phenomenon. And also she also claims she was raped by this group, by this entity and all sorts of things like that. And we kind of talked about the nature of that and some other cases that he worked on, uh, Dr. Taft's, uh, a huge legend. And kind of like, this is one of the few in this year that we kind of talked a little bit. We, we talked about ghosts a little more, uh, Follow that up in late June, episode eighty-two. This was R.J. von Bruning, the Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch. That was you and me. Yeah, uh, I wrote a question we'll, mark on that one. I don't think was yeah, right. you were you were you were at the Roo, man. You were uh, setting up Bob Dylan's mic. Sam, oh, that's so.
1: right. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> here, come, here comes uh, <laughs> Elephant Memory over here. <laughs> It's like he he remembers shit that I don't even remember. Like, he remembers where I am. I
5: yeah, because I'm just like, well, you're not coming to the show, whatever, bro. Anyway, R. G. Von Bruni. He's in a guilt trip. <laughs> I love you, Luke. We we uh we had him on and we were talking about his book called The Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch. And this was some of his interpretation of the book of Enoch and what it means. And kind of the idea of an, uh, also kind of like, just like Laird Scranton, this idea of an ancient civilization. And this also uh, extremely interesting. Episode 83 yeah. this was Nick Redfern. This is the third time we had Nick on. Uh, this was Secret History. I think we're all there for that one. And we talked about his book, Secret History, where we talked about different kind of like aspects of conspiracy, different conspiracy theories. There was a lot to get into on that show.
7: That was the first time I ever heard of the Roswell slides.
5: Yes. Yes. And we actually, yeah, we talked about that, which was this big kind of boondoggle this year where not to go into it too much. But apparently there was these slides that showed that reported to say I have a dead alien. And it turned out to have and actually been pictures stories from a museum. Slowly
7: evolved as the evidence sort of came to light. And it right, just, it, it, it was just, just a, discredited everything
5: more than it. Held. It was just a kid with pulgaria. Yeah, and, and Nick had done. Some, Nick, <laughs> <laughs> Nick, Nick had done. Uh, Nick had done some research on it, so I got his his opinion on it. Episode eighty four. This was quite an episode. It's the big one. This was Mister Randy Kramer, also known as Captain K. And we talked about his experiences on Mars and his old his old Betty Lou. And <laughs> yeah, uh, that was awesome. <laughs> that was one for the books, yeah, gentlemen. I definitely Zach, re- you definitely you know you missed out. If you thought Thad McCracken was good, <laughs> this one put Thad to Thad to shame. Fact, yeah, I'm go I'm home right say. now and listen to it. It's- I, I will definitely
7: look it at eighty four. I'll listen to it because
3: yeah, I've, I've heard uh, a yeah, lot about Captain
1: K eighty four. It's a good one.
5: I've
3: heard yeah. a lot about Captain K, and uh, that's definitely definitely one I need to listen to. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Any thoughts on that one, Rob? That you wrote down? Oh I God. know you had a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> I
7: wrote yes with three exclamations. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
5: Uh, this was all over the map, man. I mean, fighting <laughs> reptilians on Mars. What are you talking about? Like some like squid creatures or it, something? He, he was not? a test tube baby. Like <laughs> was a, no, he's yeah. a genetic, he's a genetic super soldier. There's eight, right?
7: eight or 10 different alien races. There was time travel. There was, yeah futuristic
1: weapons there was there was everything real guns real good real guns yeah so I, I was like so i think it's safe to say you could kick some ass so huh? and he's like oh, <laughs> oh you're damn right i can
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah right. for sure uh
5: followed up by just episode 85 and just i don't know like you know you really could have followed this up with anybody but i followed it up with doctor future and that's uh, that that was uh that was just this this uh the georgia guidestones revelations and we were actually the first show to talk about when right when they released the cuz i knew about this documentary cuz mike had been working on it for a long time about the georgia guidestones and who who potentially built it and we actually got the scoop that night the only thing we didn't really find out was the name so that was a uh, that was very cool to become a part of that yeah, yeah, your masters and how you agreed with the Georgia Guidestones, so You didn't have to
1: sit in traffic anymore. <laughs> well, $500 in million is is a little low. What's well, like what was
5: like all the ninety two people that moved to Nashville a day? What yeah. that happening? What was
1: it? Yeah, uh, I wasn't ninety two, It was somewhere close though. So. Yeah,
7: it's too damn many.
1: Yeah, <laughs> too many. Any thoughts on that one, Rob?
5: I, were you? I don't know if you were there for that. I don't think I
7: was there, but I mean. Mike could be on every other episode. And I'd be happy. Like, right. That guy, yeah. That guy just has this massive wealth of knowledge. Yes.
1: Oh, 94. That's what it was.
3: 94. 94 <laughs> a day. Okay. Well, if it wasn't for that 94 day, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> you, you did. Yeah. Transplant.
1: Go back to where you belong. Are and you me too. Not from me Nashville? too, in 2003. <laughs> I'm from here. I am. I promise.
3: Anyway. did not say you're from Watertown. But
1: that is Nashville. That's greater Nashville. <laughs> it's
3: greater Tennessee oh, County. Oh okay. We
5: just gotta move out the suburbs, move the line over a little bit, okay. Move it to
3: the end of the next I'm from county.
5: Tennessee. I'm anyway.
3: from
1: right count. outside you're a of
3: transplant Memphis. Too. Go, go back to Chattanooga. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm from
1: right <laughs> outside of Memphis. Well, we, got the, we got a resident like, Yankee right here. You know, right? you know I'm, what? I'm you're still from, from the South. Yeah,
5: you're basically <laughs> from Canada. Where's Alyssa? She's Everybody thinks she's Canadian. Uh, episode, episode 86. That's uh, Thomas Fusco. This is Behind the Cosmic Veil. And we talked to Thomas about his book, uh, Behind the Cosmic Veil. And his uh, theory of supergeometry, and this is we got kind of we got really scientific on this one. A lot of talk about space time.
7: Yeah, he was the guy that was, he was trying to come up with like like kind of like um, time cube, like Einstein's <laughs> theory of everything, or the, the equation that can kind of sum it all up, type of right, sort of a theory but something that includes paranormal in it.
5: Yeah. Yeah, just kind of his way of trying to explain the paranormal in in a, in a scientific fashion is like this idea that you have a kind of an abstract universe that comes into our own. Uh, episode 87, Walter Bosley again. This is the second time, Secret Missions. And we talked about his two of his books, Secret Missions 1 was about Secret Missions 1 is about Juan Cabrillo, the uh, Spanish conquistador. And his idea that uh, he was actually looking for the Excalibur sword in California, which was an interesting thing. And that the Excalibur sword was made out of Orme, which is also another interesting uh, idea. And then Secret Missions 2, (laughs) where we talked about Sir Richard Burton, not the actor, but the explorer, who uh, the idea that he was looking for lost cities in South America and got really deep on that one. Episode 88, this is August, August 19th. We, this is momentous because this was the first show that we did in this studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was with Marie D. Jones. We talk about mind wars. We talk about mind control, how uh, uh, the media.
7: MK Ultra stuff, I MK love
5: that. Ultra, right. And the media kind of influences and cults and anything like that. Any insight on that one?
7: Um. No, just it's that's one of my it's one of my favorite topics. I mean, it goes all the way into like your modern advertising techniques and marketing and stuff, and you know, you can see a lot of the um, sort of same same type of uh, tactics and stuff put in place that the, the government's been using for for hundreds and hundreds. Oh of years. yeah, yeah, absolutely. W-
5: was I there for that one? You were yeah. there for that one. Oh, you were there for that one. Okay. Whether you slept through it or not, I can't remember. But,
7: <laughs> but I love all the history of the MK Ultra stuff. Like, oh, yeah. just cause if you look at that and if you look at what the government did then 50, 60 years ago, then there's no way to deny what they're
5: capable of. And today. that's come up so many times on this show too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not even funny. And I think there's a lot of an as, and we even talked about this on the show with her. It was that I think there's a lot of aspects of the UFO abduction phenomenon that could easily be explained by mind control experiments. Uh, episode eighty nine. This was Micah Hanks, uh, first time we had Micah on this year, uh, we just were graced with his presence last last time when he came on the show, uh, in the studio with us. Uh, we talked about podcasting and kind of like the importance of it, and we also talked about the conspiracy media because we that it was right to the point where we had those two newscasters that were the newscaster and the cameraman that were shot oh, uh, in Virginia. Right. And we talked about like how people were just kind of jumping the gun and saying it was a false flag. And there were some weird things about that where we were kind of talking about how like the, the conspiracy media. Uh, that was an, also an interesting one because uh, that's uh, we're kind of working out the kinks in the studio. And I uh, kind of got like a long email from somebody because uh, Luke was reading a uh, a an instrument, a, a music catalog, and it just made noise throughout the entire. <laughs> Which
1: wasn't noticeable to us. It was only on the recording.
5: Right. It's like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but come to find out, like Micah's like wicked awesome, though. Right. You yeah. Know? I
5: don't think he even cared. <laughs> Episode 90. This was Dark Marquis and David Snitker from Southwest Prophecy Ministries. This was Good. an out of the ordinary show, I gotta say. Yes, it was. Uh, this is the one Alyssa wasn't allowed to come. To yeah, see. we wouldn't let Alyssa in, <laughs> it, Alyssa come in here and uh, be on the mic. And <laughs> <Hey. laughs> we get the bird, <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So Doc Marquis is someone that we had had on. This this is the guy that uh, claims that he was in the Illuminati. That he's a former Illuminati witch, and later he was born again and came to the Lord and. He had a, uh, he, uh, he was, uh, starting a, uh, prophecy ministry and we had on also the president of the ministry with us as well. There was a lot of, uh, mention of Kim Davis. Yeah, there was. And, uh, which is why we, <laughs> Pro- we, we, we may be laid into there. Pro
1: Kim Davis.
5: <laughs> yeah. Pro Kim Davis. They, they and, referred to as sister Kim. <laughs> sister, sister Kim. And, uh, sister
1: Kim. <laughs> well, well, actually from our,
5: our, our good friend, Heather, uh, said again i think you know we're trying to work the kinks out and this was of course is during the summer and so you know we the windows were kind of open and we had uh we had crickets going on outside (laughs) and uh for some reason the microphone was just picking up the crickets and there was one point while
7: (laughs) while everyone gets quiet though the cricket level comes up
5: (laughs) there was one point where none of us were speaking and uh None yeah. of us were speaking, and Doc Marquis was speaking, and all of a sudden, you just hear. <laughs> 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 it, it, it had nothing. I mean, like it wasn't. It wasn't meant, but Heather just said that she thought it was beautiful. So, <laughs> thank you, Heather. The music uh, of the crickets. The music of the crickets. <laughs> Episode 91, that's Michael Heiser uh, the second time we had and we had him on and that was with uh, talking about his book The Unseen Realm, which is an incredible book. Uh, again, very meticulous, very, very scholarly researched, uh, really helped me to kind of understand the Bible and what everything really means. and that was also kind of a big tr- a big treat with to also have Scotty Roberts join us on that show. And Scotty kind of sat in as a guest co-host. A yeah. Yeah, that's
7: a lot of the um the biblical history type stuff bores me, but he's I, I love Dr. Heiser. But... Yeah. The Bible's actually yeah, pretty pretty
1: brutal, dude. You yeah. Know?
5: Yeah. Because actually at the end of that show we played that rap that uh the two guys in England did There was nothing but Bible verses. Oh yeah, that's right. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this next two shows a little strange in the order. Uh, I'll actually start off with episode ninety three because we'll get to ninety two here in a second, and we actually recorded this before episode ninety two, so that's why I'm doing it. That was Scott Bennett. Oh, yeah. That was about his book Shell Game, and that was a bizarre show. Yes, yeah, not because did. of the well, not because of the material. But because as we're talking to Scott and we're getting into this whole idea about the UBS banking scandal and Scott was a whistleblower who revealed some of this scandal had actually gone to federal prison for these ridiculous trumped up charges. Uh, you listen to that show. It's episode 93. We're talking about he's talking about John Boehner in the middle of the show. All of a sudden, everything just goes down. As soon
7: as he starts dropping names and blowing the whistle, my computer hasn't worked right since. Like really? It's, it's yeah, glitchy. and he's
1: he's got state of the art friggin' equipment in here too. Yeah, it it just like it just goes down. It just like resets. And we'd
5: had a problem the previous week because we were supposed to have him on on September 21st, and we we had to reschedule because he couldn't get his Skype back up.
7: Yeah, because he had been. He
1: thinks he was hacked. He said he'd been
5: hacked. Yeah. the CIA says,
1: give him an overload.
5: That's <laughs> pretty <laughs> cool. So so we so we get him on and. And this happens, and he can't hear us. We can hear him, so he just finishes up the show. And we were about to have Peter Robbins on, which I made episode ninety-two, talking about Left at East Gate. Oh, right, that's when we had to rush back. And to we place. had to go scramble get the get the mics and go back to my house, which thankfully is not very far down the road. And we had to reset up back there. And that's what I made episode ninety two, which was Peter Robbins that was uh, left at Eastgate. That was the Rindlesham Forest uh, incident, and you talk about his friend uh, Larry Warren who uh, witnessed this incident in uh, England in nineteen eighty. This UFO incident, and also another thing about Peter that I, that I thought was just really interesting for me was you know his sister uh, Helen Wills was a big Oh, yeah. punk rock icon <laughs> in new york city and peter knew all these people
7: he was hanging out with all these people that now are legends and he didn't right even, at yeah. the time no one knew they were gonna
5: end right. up like that because he's like in his late 60s now yeah and he was like in his late 20s early 30s at the time and he was uh he was hanging out at cbgb's he said he saw the ramones he saw blondie and uh, like he a blue and, oyster he cult. did yeah a blue, blue oyster Floyd. cult and he did he did like he and we're talking about like did you ever know Patty Smith and he's like oh yeah I decorated her house <laughs> and then later on like you don't hear this in the interview we're still talking to him afterwards and he's uh I'm talking he's talking about I'm like did you ever know Lou Reed and he's talking about how uh he's talking about how like he saw the Velvet Underground back in the uh back in the back in the uh late 60s
7: yeah, that, that that was a cool one because uh, the Rendles from Foresting is something I've I've heard a lot about before. It's cool to talk
5: to someone that's, like that close to it. Yeah, uh, that yeah, pretty pretty incredible.
1: My brother just said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody wants to know that. <laughs>
5: <laughs> anyway, uh, we Thanks, we man. have uh, the next show, episode ninety four. This was this was
1: shout out to all our brokers out there if
5: you're <laughs> listening. <laughs> This was uh Scott Walter. Uh, we talk about his show Pirate Treasure of the Night Templar. This is a big deal to have somebody on the show that was uh, that's on that's on television basically. But he's very humble about it, I must say.
7: And we had a big article written about our uh, interview with him.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Very negative. Yeah. Yeah, they were one, going after Scott Walter and we got to get it, hard, yeah. Into it. <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: But they had nothing But nice stuff to say about us. Everything you said about Adam was correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 there you go.
5: (laughs) Episode 95. uh, That's Dr. David Jacobs. Second time we had him on. We talked about his show, about his book, Walking Among Us. And that's about his uh, studies into alien abduction and alien-human hybrids.
7: I know a couple, uh, I'm sure
5: yeah i think so too (laughs) people
7: no i like i i I know a couple people that like just they're so socially awkward that there's no way they made it this far in life without a handler they're they're just incest rob
5: (laughs) (laughs) episode 96 uh steve stockton this is a strange thing is in the woods and we talked about a lot of different stories that he had and things that he had uh He'd witnessed himself, but a lot of this was just different stories from Tennessee, from really from our area here yeah, in Tennessee. A lot of,
7: yeah, a lot of um, Appalachian area stuff. He was the first guest whose uh, books I ever read. Because yeah, they were like really short. There you go. <laughs> 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 good, but Luke, really Luke good. reads all the books. All really really good books you're talking about. Right, yeah.
5: Rob,
1: <laughs> you're falling behind, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, are you a part of this show or not? <laughs> uh, this large board might say that they might have something to do with that.
5: <laughs> Episode 97 this was Agi Nost. We talked about spiritual science and how to live to your 360 something years old, which yeah. is very. <laughs> Wow.
7: I meant to write all those herbs down. I forgot.
5: Yeah. It was like, we'll never know, but actually you can go back and listen. That's true. Quite (laughs) quite an age
3: to live to. I think, I think my balls would be like dragging way behind. (laughs) That's a bit
1: of an exaggeration there. I believe. (laughs) Episode
5: 98, uh, closing the gap here. That's L.A. Marzulli, Days of Chaos. Uh, We got into it on this show a little bit. This was, uh, this, this was, uh, we got kind of deep, uh he's la is always 100 miles an hour and we also had to begin the show we had uh uh steven ogden that, from yeah. germany he talk was, about what's going on over there with the islamic fundamentalism and all, all that uh, different wasn't stuff there for that one either <laughs>
1: <laughs> hang your head and shave like dude like half the episodes you've mentioned i don't believe i was there <laughs> this was one of the wednesday night like Oh
5: uh, uh, no! It was a Sunday night. It was, was a it? Sunday night, and yeah, well, you and I had actually this deep discussion that we should have. Uh, we should have recorded, Rob. But <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Episode ninety nine. This was only a couple of weeks ago. This was uh, Rebecca Roth. We talked about her books, "Methodical Illusion" and "Methodical Deception," and we had Doctor Future sit in on that one. That was yeah. We true. talked about 9-11.
7: I thought I knew everything there was to know about that conspiracy, but she. there was like two hours yeah. of new material. For That's me.
5: how I felt first time I heard her on uh, canary car radio actually what did you think about that like
1: i mean i I hate nine eleven dude like I'm so sick of friggin hearing about it, but you know what i mean she did i mean that kept me interested you know yeah she she did <laughs> she had a lot new to bring to the table that every your everyday conspiracy theorist most likely didn't know about well and her background alone like uh lends
7: credence to it like, you, you know i've never Never thought about half of the stuff that somebody who's a, a flight attendant would, would know how they would, you know, picture all that.
5: Right. Exactly. And like, um also it, well, interesting thing that's happening right now is like uh we got two like Fetzer <laughs> who we had on, he uh, he's going on he's going after her right now. Really? Because he's he's saying that she's not who he's saying she's not who she says she is and Can we get a ball at, at the a,
1: same time. She will, Oh yeah! I like call him up. You know, like hey, we can uh, play like some Street Fighter battle music. <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah, <laughs> it's like you're totally
1: wrong because we've had a few of those like get
7: clashing sort of guests. Like yeah, let's you know let's let's have them do it out.
5: Yeah, yeah. We, uh, like that is fuck, good. like fighting fish. You just like sit back and watch the <laughs> watch the sparks fly. There you go. <laughs> Finally episode one hundred, which we split into two episodes. And uh that was good because we had Robert Hyde and Doctor Future. Micah Hanks came to see us, he was here in the studio mm-hmm. with us. And we had Nick Redfern and Walter Bosley, Adam Go Rightly we talked to, and uh Rocky again, we spoke to him. And finally, this one tonight, episode one hundred and one, last show of twenty fifteen, and that was uh Robert W. Sullivan the fourth. Talk about cinema symbolism.
3: And I can't believe how long it's been since I've been on the show. I, I thought I yeah. thought I'd been on this year.
5: Yeah, it has <laughs> it, it has been a while. It has been a while, but hopefully, Zach. Hopefully, there's
3: more of me in twenty sixteen.
5: Yeah, hopefully, now that your work schedule's kind of changed, that we'll we'll have you we'll have you on the show more. Yeah,
3: definitely. Now that we have Zach two point
5: Yeah, yeah. Closing for me on Sundays. I mean, you you could help you could help Luke with his co host duties.
1: Right. Yeah, because because together we're a whole host. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little overbearing at
3: times.
1: (laughs) 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 You know, to sit here and drink beer or whiskey. Yeah, to sit here and drink whiskey and say uh huh like every like you know thirty minutes or so. Squid babies. yeah, then come up with something stupid and random to talk about. Like, you know how hard that is, Adam.
3: <laughs> well, I, think, well, I think Adam's couple, got the easy part of reading all the books and coming up he, with the material. He does. He
1: does. Getting he does.
5: the guests. Right. Uh, 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 one of the uh, one of my, a couple of my favorite Luke moments as a co-host were uh, first the first Jamie Jacobs show, and that was uh, that was like like that was the squid babies. Uh, uh, comment, and then uh, the, the the second one was, and I'm glad it was Adam Riley, and nobody else. But the other one, where he asked to go rightly if he'd been involved in sex magic. <laughs> have you ever had sex
1: magic? Well, I mean, the guy was so interested in it, I was like, I was like, man, you talk about sex magic so much, like you had to have at least thought about trying it at some point.
7: I'm gonna go back and just take all the best Luke quotes and then next time we have a guest not show we're gonna do the best of Luke show <laughs>
5: yeah we, we need to we need to
7: have or a guest next
3: have time have Luke best doesn't of Luke. show up just play some of him's, some of his uh, ums and yas yeah and we, <laughs> we, would, we thought about making, about, about making that. a Luke soundboard yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
5: What? It's like, how's it going, Luke? Oh, I'm great, guys!
1: Yeah, I'm good. Man, man that show is crazy, man. What, what did you think about our guest, Luke? Oh, I thought he was really interesting. Uh, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was pretty interesting.
5: All right, guys. Well, that cl- that concludes the year of Conspiracy Normal. And, uh... It's been quite a year for us. We we've, we've gotten a lot of new listeners and uh, gotten onto one network, and hopefully we're gonna set to expand a lot more in 2016. And, and we're starting we're starting off uh, strong. I mean, uh, of course, next week is Christmas, and uh, two weeks from today we're gonna have a, another guest on that I'm really excited about. And uh, we're actually gonna be talking in January to two different people that are screenwriters in Hollywood, so I'm super excited about that. Ooh. About different subjects. So, thank you guys for being here. Uh, thank you, Zach, for coming sitting in with us tonight. Well, thank you we'll for have having you me.
3: I, I really enjoyed it
5: most welcome, thank you and uh Luke, thank you for being the super guy that you are with your Hattie B shirt and your you're, your satanic t-shirt you're
1: welcome, bro I mean like you you're really <laughs> lucky to have stumbled across me for a co-op <laughs> <laughs> I' <just> so humble. <laughs> 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 and of course the best of all
5: Rob the, the man with the man with the uh, the apparatus that makes it all work so alright guys we're gonna call it a night and uh, we'll see you next year have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year on Conspira Normal
1: God I can't wait for some Taco Bell
8: Merry Christmas I don't want to fight tonight with oh, Cause I don't wanna